Welcome to the I'm a Sibling Podcast. Uh, this is Ija Mohan, and today I have with me Amrish. Amrish, it is. Uh, actually, I remember you is as Amrish the Moose Jesse, right? Why was why why the Moose? Huh? I mean, I we, we didn't we even did a T-shirt, right? Yeah, yeah, I remember. I, I had I think that's t-shirt. how we met. That's isn't that how we met? You did the T-shirt. Yeah, yeah I was first. looking for like a to make a custom Moose T-shirt. I yeah. found out about you guys, and that was a out of a very beautiful relationship. <laughs> Man, this was years. And I'm assuming this is uh, on Twitter la, as, as, uh, or was it was on it? Facebook? No, I think it was Facebook. I wasn't wow. that much on So Facebook. how did you get the moose as a... So, I mean, when I was younger, I used to game a lot. Okay. And you know, you'd always have these weird game handles and whatnot, right? Uh, so, moose. Okay. The, the full gaming handle was Fluffy the Humping Moose. And okay, this would a lot be for uh, <laughs> Counter-Strike and a whole bunch of stuff, right? So then I realized maybe it's a bit too long, Fluffy the Humping Moose. So it just went down from that to Fluffy, then Fluffy the Moose, and then slowly just Moose stuck. And it's been the Moose all the way. La. I mean, it's better than having an like, Amrish Fluffy Jesse or something like that. It'd be weird. So. I, I don't know, man. I mean, when it comes to... I think you need to move the mic a little bit closer. Closer? Yeah, just, just get it a little bit closer. Okay, okay. Yeah. I all right, cool. Okay. So, uh, when it comes to nicknames and handles, yeah. uh, I mean, the the gaming world has some vicious ones. Like I've heard, uh, uh, you know, my handle on, on social media at the early point was Spicy Guy. Was spicy because of my guy. restaurant. Oh, oh, I ran a I'm restaurant sure, called sure. Spicy Corner. No, seriously. A see, <laughs> see, I, see, I did not get that right. I, I ran a restaurant called Spicy Corner and I thought, okay, like, the social media presence, Spicy Guy, like, relating me to the restaurant. And it's only after a little bit, people started pointing out that uh, there's a little bit of a, a pervertish innuendo to to this la. And I was like, "What do you mean? Like, you know, spicy guy? Like, I'm like, what are you talking about? It's a restaurant, spicy gonna." And then, and then I realized I'm an idiot, and it actually comes across as very, very perverty and your typical. <laughs> no, no, it it's more like a stud-like kind of. <laughs> You know, announcement like yeah, if somebody spicy. calls themselves spicy, they're probably not a stud, lover. <laughs> okay, um, so back then when we met, I believe, right, and uh, was you were on the score on on this magazine or you yes, just started? so the score, the score would have been my second job as a writer. The score. What was your first? You men. Oh, you men before the score. Yes. And you met Richard. So, okay. At Newman. No. Um, Richard goes, okay, I met Richard the first time. Literally the first time where I saw him. Okay. Was at an FHM party. It was in Sunway Lagoon. Okay. I was a college kid. I used to like most healthy, regular college meals. Yeah. I used to be a fan of FHM. I used to buy the magazines for its wit and uh, great writing and nothing <laughs> of more. Of course, nobody looks at the Recipes <laughs> and drinks, of course. I mean, that's what FHM is all about and other stuff. So anyway, back then, FHM parties used to have it in like um, Sunway Lagoon and all these kind of outdoor places, you know, yeah. so not just Okay, just clubs. to give a little bit of context, uh, because I've been, I, I've been accused of uh, going into... Uh, private conversation that people can relate, right? So, in the <laughs> sense, to give a little bit of context, uh, Richard Richard Augustine was actually on the podcast. So yes. he's not somebody that you know people don't know. You don't <laughs> hey, know this Richard. Richard's podcast, right? <laughs> so Richard we're talking about that Richard. Okay, yes. just to give that context, yeah. Sure. So that Richard who you interviewed, 
is uh, someone who's been in the media industry for the longest time, right? right. So when I went for this FHM party, I remember he had this T-shirt uh, that said, F fear, drink beer. Okay. That famous Stone Cold Steve Austin <laughs> quote. He, he's a huge wrestling fan. Okay. And he was the editor of FHM. And I was okay. just, I remember staring at him like one of those common people queuing up to go in for the party. Okay. And I saw him walking in, you know, just because he's the editor of VIP. I like, just walk in there like a baller with his t-shirt. Wow. I was like, that's the editor of FHM. Look at his t-shirt. <laughs> it's so damn cool, man. You know? <laughs> I was like, man, one day, you know. So I saw him, went for the party. And um, when I started doing my internship, okay, and I was looking for a place to, to intern at, I was actually studying Public relations, believe it or not. So okay. at that point, I still had no idea what I wanted to do. Okay. So PR, uh, forgive my ignorance. So does PR have a big writing component to it? It does. Um, but it's very confined by what purpose it's supposed to serve and for whom. Okay. Does it fall under the umbrella of MassCom or? Yes, it does. So okay. I, I studied MassCom. Okay. Uh, my diploma. And okay. That after like certain semester, you can choose what you're going to major in, okay. whether it was uh, PR, advertising, or journalism. Oh, so journalism also falls under MassCom? Yes. That's a pretty broad... It was, which was the whole appeal of it to me because after school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Okay. Um, like most people, lost. Okay. And I thought, okay, science pertanya, and although I was... <laughs> <laughs> so your uh, your your you know family didn't pressure you into no, any fortunately direction. they did not. Okay. Um, you know the conventional Bai thing would be either engineer. <laughs> I don't think of doctor, Bai, by the way. <laughs> Thanks for putting that in my head. Now. <laughs> I'm really sing. Okay, don't forget that. <laughs> I don't know you as the moose, bro. <laughs> okay, but, I did not know. Uh, I'm really sing Jesse. Yes. Oh wow! Now I know. Okay. But, no, okay. seriously. But yes, <laughs> seriously. So, fortunately, I was never pressured to go down that, that okay. path, the okay. holy trinity of, of careers for Punjabi. Okay, okay. <laughs> but yeah, my dad uh, is an English teacher. Okay. So I think that was part of the reason why he was very open to the idea of me taking something like MassCom. Okay. Uh, I grew up in a household full of books and, and mm. reading and he was an English teacher. So that was something that I felt, hey, okay, I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed okay. writing. You can study this? Okay, that seems pretty easy. Okay. <laughs> That's just... and, you, and and having a, a father who's an English teacher or having a parent who's an English teacher, does that mean that, you know, over dinner table, you say the wrong grammatical error, you get corrected? Yeah. Or, or... It, it did happen. Of okay. course, he would uh, correct me, you know, okay. at times and whatnot. But I would also go to him with questions. I remember reading, do you remember Singapore True Ghost Stories? Was that yeah, book, yeah. Right? Dude, that was big, right? It was huge. It I don't know whether it still is. I'm talking about it as a past tense. I have no idea. <laughs> I know even those books were like super popular. Nice. Yeah. Ah, okay. So I used to read those, but at a young-ish age, I remember asking my dad, I was reading a story and it was the first time I read the word bikini. <laughs> I went to my dad. So every time, usually any word, yeah. I just ask him, this one you could see his face change a little bit. <laughs> What are you reading? And it's not a thing. This this book is, um, you know, for older teenagers and you can stop <laughs> So did he give you the definition of a bikini? Uh, yeah, he just said it was something females wear right. when they go to the beach. Yeah, I would imagine swimsuit will be a easy discarding <laughs> of that conversation. <laughs> but to address it, because there were a lot of um, English books, like he would just give me this, he would teach English, and, mm. but of course for maybe like secondary school, mm. and maybe higher grades than I was, but okay. the books would be just there. Okay. And I would just attempt to just go and... See, can I... What are the assumptions that I have, right? Is... I think I speak English reasonably well, right? 
And I realized that, you know, I'm not a writer, not a journalist, nothing like that. But even when I'm like, you know, doing at work, sending out emails or when my staff is sending me emails and all that, I realize I'm a bit of a grammar Nazi, right? And I correct them when, if I can. Never over email, it's usually in person. Over email, you're just taking it too far, right? Uh, but uh, usually if it's presentations and all that, right? So the question I've always asked myself is, why aren't other people just as, you know, OCD as I am, right? And so my assumption is, and I am making an assumption, my assumption is that having your dad uh, kind of reminding you and correcting you, right? Does that now instill that when you, in the working world, so do you naturally always kind of like edit yourself or... It is my job to edit other people. No, yeah, I mean, yeah, but but not everybody is built that way, right? You know, you, you know my wife's an accountant, so, but she has an eye for, you know, when, when yeah. her staff sends her stuff to review, she looks at the grammar and all that. So the question I keep asking myself is, why do some people seem to be grammar Nazis? So just very anal about this. And for some, they just don't care. It just flies over them. Is it? Uh, do you have any kind of insight into... I, I think it basically is if you read enough, you understand the structure and how certain sentences are supposed to be. And then when something sounds a little bit different, whether you know or not what it is or what it's called, okay, you know there's something wrong and then you just identify it and change it to what you're more familiar with. You know, the, the thing that I'm very guilty of, right, is, is again, I, I feel like I have a good command of English and mm -hmm. all that. I feel like I can write and speak well. But if you start asking me about stuff like what's an adjective, pronoun, and I know. whatever it is, right, I'm like, and I realized that, dude, I, I, I don't know. I cannot define it. I'm sure if I read it, I might recall. But if you give me a sentence, I'll tell you what's wrong with it yeah, exactly. or how to fix it. But... It is when you're trying to name that mistake or what I have no idea. You know, I have <laughs> I, no idea, and I realized it is it is so important to know. It's important to know because it, it you kind of realize how the structure of yeah. a sentence. You understand is. the rationale behind certain ah, but then, rules and and you know that's when I feel really stupid. You know, when I come across this, like you see some like I see a movie, TV show, and then the kid is asking somebody about like you know adjectives and pronouns and then and then they explain it, and I'm like. If my son was to ask me that, I do not have an answer for him. Not yet, lah. Okay, <laughs> right. So, do you do you operate the same way, or do you feel that you have you have come to do because of mascom background and all that you have kind of mastered that English language? Uh, uh, I I just from say, a technical point of view. No. So your dad can still get pissed off with you for sure. Uh, <laughs> like you know, because I'm like you, where. I can't necessarily know the right thing of what you're doing wrong, but I can tell you if it's wrong. Uh, <laughs> no, I and I because and I, I feel you don't need to know those things, the technicality of it, to be right. a good writer. Yeah, because uh, you need to first find your voice, mm. and mm. that should be what carries it, your tone and whatnot. So for me, like I grew up reading a lot of uh, satire and humor and joke books. Okay. okay, and and that is now naturally something I incorporate into whatever that I write. Okay, um, which is part of the appeal of FHM because honestly uh, their writing had a lot of wit and humor mm, and yeah, these yeah. people from the UK they're great writers right so you're yeah. getting all these British people writing humor you know in article <laughs> the form and dry whatnot. wit the infamous yes. dry wit <laughs> yes so you see it presented as maybe on the, on the big screen or whatnot yeah. I like it being presented in, in words and I appreciate the craft mm. 
of them putting it together and, and the references when you get it and whatnot. So I enjoyed that about FHM. It felt right. like the only place where I could write as myself um, growing up. I used to randomly scribble jokes here and there. I was the only mm. child. Okay. Bored as hell. Okay. No computers and all <laughs> those kind of things, right? So, and <clears throat> growing up with all your Enid Blytons and Hardy Boys and mm. Nancy Drews. Mm. And mm. I spent a lot of time uh, in libraries. Okay. Not because I was studying or I was smart. No, I just liked reading books, like, you know, just going boring and whatnot. Okay. And, and find, even when I moved around a lot, okay. uh, to the point where I even sort of went to a mobile library my first time in my life, which is just a moving van that used to go around yeah, yeah, neighborhoods and houses and whatnot. And you could I just remember. go and ah. pick whatever you books you want. And okay. then when they come back the next week, you return it and whatnot. Wow. So you just yeah, pick up from all this and... and slowly started appreciating more uh, satire and, and I remember I had those compilation of jokes and you know, all those mm. kind of things. No, I, I do. I remember forcing my parents to buy this book where it's like 1001 jokes and <laughs> you know, now I think of it it's just so stupid but I devoured and I will be angry like oh this page some jokes not funny right and then you look for those and jokes. then you would start like telling those jokes you know next like, family function or something. <laughs> I remember this one joke. <laughs> no actually uh, you you do have a point in the sense that uh, I think if I was trying to reflect on myself, right, a lot of those things that I didn't study but I enjoy reading, like I read a lot of uh, magazines, like especially like uh, when it comes to automotive, anything car related, right. I read a lot of those, right. So I realized that like it is that that kind of vocabulary is in my subconscious, right. So now when I speak or when I write, it kind of just flows and then like second nature. Yeah. So if something's off, I my point of reference is always all these things that I've read before. And because I used to enjoy reading all these literally stupid jokes and dumb puns, right? I realize even on my day-to-day with my wife, you know, if you're talking to my wife, she can tell you the amount of times I annoy her on an hourly basis, right? And I realize that sometimes it's just, just doing the stupid jokes, saying the <laughs> stupid things that I've read on all these books, it kind of ingrains into your psyche, yeah, so yeah. to speak, right? So in that sense, yeah, okay, yeah. I probably cannot tell you how to, you know, how's the right way to structure a sentence. But if it's wrong, I'll tell you it's you can, wrong. Yeah, which is good enough for you to be an editor. Is, is. Really? I mean, yeah. I, I thought editor, you know, no, no. the assumption I is I think if you want to be an English highly... teacher, then you better know the whole technicalities ah. of it. If you're an editor these days, this can go back quite a bit. But now, first in the first place, not all editors would take the time to point out what you did wrong. Okay. Why it's wrong and how you should correct it. Mm. But it also boils back down to whether the writer in the first place is interested in knowing mm. that. Mm. You know? mm. And then this goes down back a whole deeper stemmed thing of quality content so you, and you, how it's when you regulated. Say that, when you say that, uh, are you saying it from a point of view that uh, a writer sometimes feels like, look, I put out content, it's the editor's job to fix it. Yes, exactly that. And I don't blame them. You know why? Uh, some places have quotas. You need oh, to do okay. X amount of articles, mm. but when it when it so that the is your of quality exactly. Mm. So then it loses the thing because with writing, you should enjoy the process, not just the result. Mm. And mm. I don't like it when you take that element of fun and enjoyment of writing away from writers. Do you do you think? Um, I agree with you, uh, but do you think that? readers can tell the difference when somebody enjoys what they're writing versus for sure yeah it's do you um, have examples of 
without getting into trouble. Huh? <laughs> Do you have examples of you think, you know, whether it's a publication or anything where one you think is there's soul in it and one is a little okay. bit soulless? Very simple, broad example. Okay. Um, if a, And since you like cars, for new cars launched, okay. you will get a press release. Right. This press release is sent to all publications with hopes of them picking it up mm. and mm. writing about it right. with already uh, preset sort of uh, depiction of mm. that car. Right. right. You, they are presenting it this way. They're hoping right. that you would pick up on it and present it in mm. the same way. Yeah. They would prefer you just copy paste the whole exactly. thing, right? If your objective is, oh, I want to be quick. Uh, this car just launched. Mm. I want to be one of the first to also talk about it and whatnot. Mm. You may just uh, resolve it because you want to be timely fashion. Right. Press release, check it out, paraphrase here and there, throw it out. That's that. Okay. Now, if someone has a little bit more soul in terms okay. of wanting to, to write it, perhaps a better way they would do is uh, draw some comparisons with previous uh, models, like if they know the okay. subject, or okay. even if they don't know, uh, take some effort into meeting the right people who could pass you the information about what you need to, to mm. obtain mm. Or, or have a different angle. So mm. my biggest irk, I think, is um, when everyone just jumps on board and does it the same way mm. for the sake of just doing it rather than actually having something envisioned. Like, I want to tell it this way for mm. this purpose. And you envision what the readers are going to sort of get out of it. Yeah. I mean, the I know we kind of segued a little bit, but then I find this part very interesting uh, only because, especially when it comes to writing um, or creating content, uh-huh. right? Uh, if you were to ask me, I feel the most important thing is uh, being authentic. Yes. Right? I think being authentic... You know, you don't have to have the best grammar. You don't have to have, you know, the best anything, right? But just by being yourself, if it resonates with people, it'll work, right? And and one of the examples that I always see, because I'm a carnat, is like I followed I followed Top Gear for the longest time, right? So which is a I don't know. Do you know Top Gear? Do you know? Of yes. course, right? Okay, thanks. <laughs> right, so. Uh, so you know, it's these three clowns, uh, Jeremy, uh, James, and Richard, right? Mm-hmm. And they, uh, I would say, thirty percent of what they do is automotive journalism, lah, right? Seventy percent is just them annoying the shit out of each other, right? And it works for them because they kind of created that genre. Was they were a motoring show, which kind sort of evolved of lifestyle into, elements into it. So. Yeah, just they kind of injected their own idiosyncrasies into it, right? So, but you know, like in Malaysia, I think without a doubt, one of the top car publications or car blogs is Paul Tanla, mm-hmm. right? So even when they came up with their Driven series, and I felt that the, the struggle was, they also tried to replicate Top Gear, right? In the sense that they want to create uh, this little friction between the hosts and making fun of each other and all that. And I felt that it didn't feel... It felt like they were trying... It you No, know, I think Malaysians, we are uh, nice people. Lah. So if we work together, we very hard for us to feed on <laughs> each other. I think by, 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 you know, by default, we are nicer people, right? Whereas, you know, the Brits, they feed on each other a lot. They rip on yeah, each other yeah, a lot. Yeah. It's just how they are, right? So trying to replicate that here... May not just work, it, right? Yeah. It, I felt like it was very artificial. Right, so in the sense that, you know, we see something that works, 
and then we try but to it replicate works there it there with a different audience, which are different target demographic, different culture. No, and actually, it's not. It's not even the the audience, right? Because the on, Top Gear has, I think, it's one of the top rated shows globally. Worldwide, right? yeah. So I think the audience is not just the Brits, but the thing is, the hosts. This is who they are. They're authentic, right? So they're not. They are just idiots who like to do stupid yeah, things. They're right? not putting up a front or faking yeah, it or anything. I'm, I'm sure it's scripted and all that, but you believe that this is what they, they are, are. That's how they know? are. Right? But it doesn't necessarily apply to everyone. Mm. Right? And, you know, even when, when Top Gear, when these guys went on and started the, uh, what do you call it, the Grand Tour, they started their own on yeah. Amazon. I feel it doesn't feel the same because they are trying to replicate. They are also the same guys are trying to replicate what they did with Top Gear, with the Grand Tour, and it's not working because instead of starting something totally new, they're kind of doing a, like a spin-off, right? So, I don't know, man. I mean, I think authenticity is, it. you know, it. Uh, I really resonate for people who are truly original. Uh. For me, that's like... It, it should be that way because uh, that's how you stand out, like especially in terms of your writing, which I mentioned, like in terms of how style or, or in terms mm. of certain... Your, what things you incorporate into your writing. Mm. When people uh, read certain articles, like Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain, mm. when yeah. you read his books, you read it in his voice. You know, yeah. he is narrating those words. You know, he says things in that way. You know, the kind of references, pop culture references he makes to like, you know, your pulp fictions and the old school movies and all that. That's him. That is his soul. And when yeah. he writes it, you read it and you envision it. And yeah. that's what I feel is very interesting about writing. You shouldn't uh, try to replicate like you said. Mm. Because... People enjoy you or your writing most when they're hearing it from you as you just spit it but, out as you, you know, we, we were talking about this before and and ironically, if I can say ironically, ironically, the industry doesn't seem to appreciate authentic content. Why do you think that's the case? Uh, if, if I'm making an assumption, which I'm very good at, <laughs> very good at it, <laughs> I feel um, that most often than not, uh, is we want to replicate success, right? So we are not looking to create a success, right? Yes. We are just, right now it feels that we're trying to replicate a success. So if, you know, I was talking to uh, Fabes, Fat Fabes right, the other day, right? So he was saying that when he and Rina Omar came on TV, that was the first time the not typical host-looking people uh, and talking on TV without an accent, mm. talking like Malaysians, just being themselves, right? So you're saying before them, this kind of show never existed in Malaysia, right? So they were the risk. But now, a lot of people are trying to replicate that. Like, just be Malaysian, be yourself, right? Yeah. So in that sense, most of the time, we are just trying to replicate what's been proven to be successful. And if that's the case, more often than not, it's not authentic. Like. And you are also then chasing something that it's already established and has, you know, already... Mm. You're, you're chasing, like, it's con constantly going to be in the chasing game. Yeah. Um, I don't think that... Especially when it comes to creatives and whatnot, mm. be it music, movies, film, TV, writing, whatnot, don't be afraid to set the trend. Like, do something different. And mm. if others want to replicate, take that as something that's uh, of a... You know. No, I mean, that's... I think that is what is most painful for me to hear. Even when I talk to people like you and all, right? The fact that our industrial mega media machine does not appreciate, you know, authentic or does not give authentic content a chance. Exactly. 
that is it to, to kind because of when it succeeds it will be full on ah that is you know we, sh- we should have done this a long time ago yeah. this was a great idea yeah. but there's no okay for me I'm not a business person at all mm. uh, which has worked to my disadvantage obviously okay. do you um, think editors need to be business people I feel Richard is a great example of how he can balance both the passion and, and skills of writing okay. and also managing the business side of it Okay. still something that I'm definitely working on or having to learn but okay. it was the biggest um, issue because I was full on oh, content I so believe from in a, this from a uh, say from a content publication mm-hmm. point of view uh, an editor is at the top of the full chain it, it depends because depending on how big your editorial team is you may have multiple layers of editors for example a managing editor a no. sub editor deputy editor so who so if just say the, at the top is the managing editor right so they are also responsible for looking at the commercial side, advertising, um, so, cost. Yes. So for the most part, you would have your sales team, you would have marketing. Okay. Okay. Which all answer to the editor as well. Yes. Oh, wow. But no, that depends, right? So it depends on how big of a publishing company it is and whatnot. Okay. So who you answer to. For the most part, uh, maybe editors have just a call of what content is put into it. Mm. Um and then depending on how, how how willing they are to to put on the black belt and start fighting for mm. maybe like, okay, this client is not suitable for our brand or mm. this is something that we don't want to do. Mm. Because that often the most the dilemma is this, right? Um, okay, someone wants to come in with money. Okay. Are we willing to go down to their terms? Are they coming in on our terms? Where do mm. we draw the line? Where is mm. there a balance of, uh, you know, how do we not bastardize our content at the mm. cost of, say, getting money and... and, yeah. and so that's constantly the, the issue here. And if someone can sort of balance it out, like, mm-hmm. okay, hey, you come, we understand your needs as a client, okay. uh, what you want, what you're going to push, but this is our audience. We know our audience. We know mm-hmm. what resonates with them. Uh, we mm-hmm. know what they are coming to us for. Okay. And if we suddenly change this abruptly, it will go notice. They think that, ah, it's okay. Just, I don't understand. Yeah, no, because, you know, it... I, Readers I, should be prioritized, not yeah. not really. No, I actually, you know, me being an idiot and not knowing how the industry works, I actually feel there, or actually felt there would have been a separation between the editorial slash creative side versus the commercial side. Like. Yeah, it should and be. It should not be influenced. But you're saying if you know if your organization is not big enough, and if the same person is looking at both sides, then I imagine a case where an editor might push back on a story just because it might not serve the commercial needs of, you know, the magazine or whatnot. Lah. Oh, that sucks, man. And, but that's how, that's usually the norm. Yeah. So, wow. because you ask, uh, they don't, sometimes they don't give the time for certain things to, to massage and ideate. And mm. you know, so, mm. for example, uh, if you're starting a brand from scratch, okay, and you come in and you want to sort of be the same or do the same thing that five other brands who have been doing it for maybe five years already prior to you are already doing it. Okay. So they've got their fan base, they've got their voice, they know that this is my thing. This mm-hmm. is my type of content. Okay. This is the format of how my content is presented. Mm. And I've nailed it. Like I've done it long enough. Mm. Uh, and I did it at a time where there were not enough people doing it. Okay. So it's my territory. Mm. But that is looked as, oh, that's successful. That is mm. a success case. Right. Look at the maybe whatever numbers they're bringing in, be it revenue, reach, or whatnot, we should be that. 
that's what the that's the pressure that's put on us. Mm. We should replicate that because that is success. Okay. There's, there's or uh, if you don't give a chance for something else to succeed, and you right. only look at that, that's the successful. There's the only formula for it to succeed. Then they replicate, mm. and then chances are, if you replicate, you're just going to be another one in the scheme. You know, all struggling to stand out by producing the same type of content or the same type of. So don't you think that? Um, at the beginning, at least, like having uh, a market differentiation is super important as opposed to trying to be more like the... More effort should be put into... The, like international brands like FHM and all that. Mm-hmm. Before the brand even starts, there's a brand book, okay. a guidebook, everything about the brand. Right. What is FHM? Who right. do we represent? Uh, who do we speak to? What voice do we use? Mm-hmm. Um, what is the purpose? Mm. So for FTM, it was simple. We are men's, we are lads mag, mm. you know, and we are never exclusive. We are always inclusive. That means when guys pick up a copy of FHM, mm. they're looking at things they can afford to buy. They're looking at events they can go to. They're looking at girls next door, you know, like mm. it's all this obtainable, achievable things. Okay. okay. Compared to, so that's their thing. Like okay. then you have the others, Mike. Okay. We, we want men to aspire to, okay. You know, then you have your high-end mags. Where okay. This is what you should be wearing. This type of events that you should be going right. to. So that okay. was FHM. But my point is this, that when you have that established, you know what your brand is, what it stands for, who you're reaching out to, the whole works. Without that, you're easily swayed by whatever that comes. Oh, okay. this client comes in, we'll do this. This client mm. comes out, we'll do that. Or if you don't have a focus or a niche, and you're competing with so many different people, then it becomes another challenge on its own. So, you know, like I, I started watching uh, the show Wokish. No, not Wokish. Wok. Wok. Wok, you know. So, uh, I can't remember his name and I hate that I can't remember his name, right? But it's the guy from The New Girl. Uh, his, his name is Winston Bishop. <laughs> In New Girl, I know his character's name. Right. But I don't know his actual name. So he has uh, done a new series where it's called Work, right? Uh, it's very timely. Uh, but basically the series, I just watched a couple of episodes. The series started off, he's, uh, you know, he's a comic strip illustrator slash writer and he has been picked up for syndication across the US. And then right, uh, so he's a black dude. Lah, okay, so the context of black dude is right before the big launch, uh, you know, the cops misidentify him as a thug or as, as a robber and they kind of tackle him to the ground. And suddenly he's he's he suddenly had a realization that holy shit, like you mean anybody can just be identified as this and all that. Of course they let him go because he was not the right guy. But the trauma made him you know, during the launch he kinda like goes all out and speaks out. You know, he's got a meltdown, right? And it kinda touches on how this whole corporate machinery doesn't really care about who you are as a person, but mm. is the brand that they think they can build around you, right? So even as successful as you are, whoever, you know, even if you see like Lewis Hamilton, right? Easily one of the best uh, Formula One drivers of all time, right? You know, everything he does is go support. But the minute he starts, you know, whole, uh, this is Black Lives Matter, he starts making a lot of statements and all that. Suddenly there seems to be a pushback on what he can say, FIA, speed mm. parade and all that. I mean, I think his team is sportive like the teams have been got his back yeah. but I don't think the whole F1 machinery was supportive of hey you're rocking the boat a bit too much right 
So, you know, suddenly it's no longer about what Lewis Hamilton believes, it's what is the Lewis Hamilton brand, right? And I don't know, man, for me, it feels like, you know, you sometimes corporate kills the brand, right? I mean, you know, the killing the brand and killing the person, I don't know whether it relates to publishing, but I feel like, you know, even brands like FHM kind of has its soul, and, right? And... If you let corporate get away with it, they can, <laughs> you know. And how do you, you know, you have now been, uh, let's count the amount of publications that you have kind of headed, right? So you started off with New Men. Started off with New Men, yes. That one was with Richard. No, that so, was. Uh, yeah. So last time, okay. um, you know MediaCorp is in Singapore? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. MediaCorp, Singapore had an office here. Okay. In uh, near MCorp Mall. So okay. Yaya said, Slango, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. And <clears throat> I did my internship there. Okay. So, <laughs> I was like, she's it, I did my internship in FHM, you know, in college. I was like, yeah, where do you intern? FHM, <laughs> you know. But that was where I met Richard. Okay. Uh, and he was the editor at that time. And uh, unfortunately, although I wanted to really intern under FHM, when I joined, they gave me the typical internship task of, cleaning storerooms and mm. photocopying and filling Excel sheets and whatnot. Mm. Mm. But because I got to clean the storeroom, that's where they kept all their international issues. <laughs> <laughs> so they have a repository of every issue. Yeah, because back then, uh, you would get from India, Australia, Singapore, wherever, Russia, Holland, okay. Germany. It gets sent to everyone. Taiwan, Japan, sent. Whoa. And we had a storeroom full of it. Okay. And I was this little intern uh, tasked to, to go and <laughs> so this little intern would walk in with a bag you. <laughs> with a huge bag, an empty bag, and leave with a very heavy huge okay. bag. Okay. But that was where I met Richard. He was there. Okay. Just a quick question there, right? So of all those different FHM editions from all those different yeah. which was the most different, you know? Or were they all very consistent? No, um, I feel like very different. Like, Taiwan was very fashion-y. Okay. They had a lot of shoots and it was thick. Um, okay. Thailand, Philippines, thick as well. Okay. Singapore is very Malaysian-like. Okay. UK had the best uh, content, like content, content, articles okay. and features. And mm. that was very nice. How about Japan? How about that? Don't understand shit. <laughs> <laughs> I have this weird thing that, well, Japan, there must be some weird stuff there, man. <laughs> Japan is like, you know, just weird on its own with or without FHM. I think FHM would have probably got banned for several reasons, like yeah. tentacles on the cover or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> so, okay. So, that was FHM? Yeah. Um, then, that, so I was an intern. Right. Matt Richard, okay. of course, fanboy am I, right? I saw him with his F beer, you know, all that. I mean, F beer, drink beer. I had to go and talk to this legend. So, I went and spoke to him. Um, but he was leaving at that point. Okay. He was leaving to Newman. Okay. And uh, after a while, after so I graduated... Newman is something new that he set up or it was no, no. an existing brand? Newman was... He didn't set it up. I think he was there but like after a while. Okay. It was after okay. it was launched. And I graduated. I got in touch with him okay. hoping that we were still with FHM saying, hey, hmm. uh, fresh grad here, ready to ready for action. <laughs> you remember me and all that? I was cleaning the storeroom. Remember that guy? And he said, oh, I'm with Newman now. I was okay. like, ah, crap, what's Newman? Mm. <laughs> Did some research. So it was malicious version of FHM or what? Okay. That was the idea. Okay. And uh, Richard was there. Okay. So I said, okay, looking for a job. Uh, went, 
met him in the kopitiam mm. right beside the office mm. and 15 minutes we're talking he said okay good come on you join <laughs> so i joined as a junior writer okay and how big was the team at that point oh, it was nice that was my first uh, exposure into like a proper editorial team okay so there was an art director wow okay so richard was so good at photo shoots okay he did some massive photo shoots for like brands like nike and a few other things okay Uh, so this one Newman was under MediaCorp. No, no. no this FHM was under uh, MediaCorp. Okay. Yeah. Newman this was This is called uh, Innovative Media. Okay. They okay. had magazines like Caliber, Golf. Okay. Okay. Few other titles. All right. A few okay. home magazines and So do you think art director? Hmm. Art director, deputy editor, several writers. Oh, wow. Okay. Was designer. he shared with other publications under no, no, the group? No. It was exclusively for Newman. Uh, for yeah. So it was wow. great. Wow. Like a full-fledged team when uh, mm. when those still existed. Yeah. <laughs> so, I learned a great deal uh, from Richard at Newman, from all the different people, photo shoots, how it all works and whatnot. Mm. And uh, the I had a to-do list. Okay. Now, I joined just for Newman. Okay. Junior writer coming in, first job, I guess you get manhandled a little bit. Mm. So, I was requested to also write for Golf and Caliper. Okay. Okay. One is a high-end lifestyle magazine, Caliber, okay. and golf okay. is golf, obviously. Okay. I had no idea. I don't know. When golf. you say high-end lifestyle magazine, you're talking about like the equivalent of what Tatler or, or... this would be a budget Tatler. <laughs> okay, got it. Mm. Okay. Because it's it's thin, it was staple bound. It was something that came along with a credit card subscription, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Okay. You okay. get this credit card every month. You get this copy of Caliber. Okay. I'm not even okay. sure whether it's still going on. Okay. Got so it. suddenly, I was writing about golf. I was mm. writing about a uh, few like lifestyle events, restaurant reviews, which is fine because it's my first job, and right. I really just wanted to absorb it all right. and understand just how diverse the whole mm. job scope was. But Newman was where what I really wanted. Mm. It was photo shoots, mm. food reviews, writing really quirky articles about movies, lifestyle. I could incorporate my style of writing mm. into Newman. Because right. of Richard, okay. he had that same style of writing with the African background and whatnot. Okay, funny ass, good writings, features mm. and whatnot. So I enjoyed. I would used to read that stuff. I learned a lot from the deputy editor. Mm. He was the kind who would highlight the shit out of you, print it out. He'll highlight this is this is wrong. This is why he would, and that's all these things. Little that I know would mm. at a later point Coming build useful. yeah mm. into how I would manage my own team. Yeah. Okay. This was my first exposure as a junior writer. So my to-do list, this article, interview days, blah blah blah. It always end with kill self, <laughs> because it was so taxing. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had all sorts of coping mechanisms. Mm. Drinking? No. Not so no much. lah. Okay. I, despite me being a bai, I was uh, a sorry, I went for the, you know, the, the, the usual stereotype lah. No, but that is true. Like you know, if you look at the. The journalist pyramid, right? Is uh, <laughs> caffeine, alcohol, pizza, tobacco, and nicotine, which makes sense. Okay. So, when you, what was your coping mechanisms? I mean, what did you? Oh no, I mean, I enjoyed it though. The okay. the reason that I could just keep pushing at that measly thousand five salary, mm. taking the bus, taking the train, going to the office, no car, all those mm. mumbo jumbo. But I enjoyed it once I got to the office and I got to my assignments, mm. meeting people, mm. uh, learning about photo shoots, dealing with stylists, photographers, conceptualizing shoots. Right. It was a lot of fun. Uh, right. Stuff that I never 
really got to experience as an intern. Okay. But going back, right, there was one point of my internship that sort of also dictated the path that I would, mm. because sure, Richard was there. You remember this magazine called Lime? Why do it sounds familiar? But so okay, Galaxy. Yes, right? yes, yes. I feel it's similar. that kind of okay, yeah. Okay. So Lime was a lifestyle, very collegey kind of thing. You know, you yeah, interview sure. people in the streets. You know, about the kids, what's happening? Right. New malls, new shops, whatever that kind of weird stuff. Mm. Uh, there was an editor for Lime. Her name was Angelina George. Okay, I thought you say Jolie. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. So okay, Angelina George. The, yeah. the, the the late Angelina George. Okay. So she was someone who you just would not want to F around with. One day, okay. as I was doing my casual stealing of FJ magazines and whatnot and innocently, mm-hmm. she calls me, Hey, you're the intern, right? Come Your life is under the same group as well. It was under MediaCorp. Okay. So <clears throat> I go to her, I said yes. Yeah. And she says, I need your help uh, to go and write about something. There's this new shop, blah, 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 open, whatever. Do it. Mm. I said, sure. You know, I joined here to write, not yeah. to clean storerooms. Yeah. I'll take it even if it's not under FHM, fine. Okay. Uh, I did it. Then I think she sort of either realized the passion or mm. maybe saw something in me. Okay. And she started giving more tasks. So this was still my two, three months internship. Time. Okay. I said, then that was the last of my Excel sheets and whatnot. Okay. She got me to work and write for Lime. Mm. So technically, while I was still interning, mm. um, as I left, she said, you should, what are you going to do after this? She asked me. Mm. Um, I had no idea. Okay. I was still doing my PR okay. uh, diploma. I had no idea what I wanted to do for my degree. She said, you should take up journalism. Mm. If she hadn't told me that, if she hadn't um, believed in me mm. or saw something in me, I don't think I would have. Uh, because from that point onwards, even after my internship, I was writing for Lime. Freelance okay. basis. That was okay. my first freelance job mm. uh, as I was writing, I mean, as I was still studying in college. Mm. Just kind of fun because if you're doing MassCom, you have a lot of uh, events and stuff you've got to organize and you're rated right. based on a few things. If you have media coverage, oh, plus points, man, like college event, getting some media oh, coverage. You managed to get some articles out there. And all so that. I was wow. the inner, you know, the, <laughs> the inside man, like, you know, in college when every first, like they're doing events, all, okay. Mm. Lime Magazine is where it's going to appear. Okay. So it's fun though because then I started picking up stories, learning how to find stories mm. and I started uh, suggesting to her, hey, I want to do... Because that time I was a college student so mm. and we were writing for a magazine that was catering to college students. Okay. It made sense to assume that things that I was interested in, mm. foosball back then was big, mm-hmm. pool, mm. a whole bunch of different things. There's some things that I could dig a little bit more and write about Cosplaying was a huge thing. Yes, and uh, there's a shop in the curve. Man, they had board games. <clears throat> they sold interesting like figurines, life-size stars. They used to have events. Okay. When the movie would launch, they would just get all these people to come dressed up in cosplays and whatnot. Wow. So I covered that community. Okay. as this um board game community. So mm, it was okay. very interesting yeah. meeting all these different societies and different yeah. cliques and different peoples with different passions and whatnot and writing about it. And... So that was my first... I started writing continuously. And you were getting paid to do these articles? Yeah. Here Dude. and there, like, you know, 50 bucks, one article. But college, okay. 50 okay, bucks, bro. Come bro, back that's then, a, that's a Friday, you know, <laughs> yeah. three for ten, you're, you're sorted, bro. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. That, okay. So, uh, you mentioned that, that 
she kind of nudged you towards journalism, right? Yeah, she she believed. I think she gave me a chance. Okay, so and but but this was already when you're doing your PR. You're already doing. The yeah, mark. but I wasn't enjoying PR at all. Um, okay, but you I, graduated with with that. Yes, a... and I did give it a try. Okay, so at a later intern, I did try to intern at a PR firm. Okay, I <clears throat> couldn't. Uh, it's writing, yes, mm. but I think the lack of freedom mm. is mm. what I couldn't really because relate you're, to. You're a slave to the brand, like, or whatever. Yes, your customer and is, right? I, I believe, no offense to the PR industry or people mm. from yeah. from PR, but I believe that you cannot spell pretentious without PR. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's designed like that, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, and I, uh, yeah, I don't think they'll hear you wrongly, you know. But, so but, it just. I, I wanted to write what I wanted to write about. Mm. I always had this itch or this hunger to find out things and write about a story that no one knew about. And mm. there was that, there was this inquisitive nature mm. uh, that I guess was instilled. So did you keep in touch with, with Angeline? I mean, after... No, she, she passed away a long time ago. Okay. Mm. okay. Uh, a few years after I was doing my internship, wow. she had a heart attack and, okay. and she passed on. So... But after that, um, that was what essentially led me to Newman. Okay. You know, <clears throat> I took my degree in journalism, mm. got in touch with Richard, who I met during my internship, mm. my idola mm. of you know, the editorial <laughs> world. And no, he never mentioned <clears throat> to me he was FHM editor. Oh, so, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I also didn't ask the question. Like, okay. That's uh, interesting. Okay, having said that, right, you know, it also sounds like this is something that you really wanted to do, right? Still wanted that, to do. Yeah. So in the sense that, um, you know, when you, even as an intern, you know, you, you knew that's the kind of world you wanted to be in, right? At that point, I really had no idea what the world was. Okay. Um, I wasn't fully exposed to the Malaysian, like, editorial world. Or, okay. Or I just knew a select number of magazines and books that I enjoyed. Okay. I started working for those. Okay, but do you think uh, every, no, it's not fair to say every, do you think most people in that world of publication, editorial and all that, right, Do you, are they there because they want to be there or are they there because it's a job? It's really hard for me to, to assume, okay. but I would hope mm -hmm. for something like this, you should be there for the passion. Mm. It's not a job that's lucrative in the sense where you're going to earn a lot of money. Mm. Um, and now, especially, I feel when most of the writing is just done behind a screen mm. with internet connection, keyboard and a mouse, it's not really storytelling or story gathering anymore. Mm. You're not mm. but enjoying the thrill, like I said, the process of mm. putting a story together. Right. You just want the, the outcome. Okay. Interesting. So that kind of led you from Newman. So Newman, that was the score. So the score Newman, was... Um, yeah, Newman was about a year and a half. Okay. okay. And then Richard was going to leave. I was like, oh <laughs> shit, why? And then, I mean, I understood, uh, like I said, maybe it's difficult. Like I mentioned earlier when we were speaking, that there are challenges when um, you want to sort of fight for content. Right, right. That whole age-old battle of, mm. you know. And... Richard left. Okay. Along with him, a lot of the team were leaving as well. And it made sense because Richard really glued the team together. Okay. So he, everyone, he everyone, knew he was going to, to, to do something else. Yeah. 
I mean, for everybody to live with him there. No, no. Uh, <laughs> I would imagine there's a hope of a paycheck there at the moment. Like some of them just left AWOL. Like they just really, yeah. Mm. Mm. And and so, but the good thing was when Richard was going, so he was going to this place called Hot Potato Publishing. Okay. Uh, they had magazines like Hello. Okay. Hot. You remember Hot? The, the yes. Gossip. Yeah. Celebrity. Dude, my memory is working overtime, but I it's I kind of kind of yeah I kind of. So feel... it's a very small uh, publishing house. Okay. With predominantly celebrity tabloid mags. Okay. Uh, I think that Moto Trader was also under them. Okay. Okay. And then uh, Richard was. Hired, mm. and because of his past, actually, somehow you're telling more of a Richard story than Richard. Because did. <laughs> he's been a huge part of the yeah, whole yeah. I'm just seeing all the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, because of his background in men's magazine and all that, they got right. him to start a men's magazine as well. Uh, wow, okay. a full fledged local one, but mm. it was different. Most of your men's magazines were, you know, thick and whatnot. This was a right. staple bound. Right. Yeah. Obviously, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the score. Yeah. So he was. He said, "Would you like to be a part of starting this up?" Okay. Um. I think I was twenty-two, something like that. And I thought mm. it'll be very interesting to learn, you know, how a magazine gets built from scratch. Right. From the conceptualizing to the segmentizing and how you're gonna get. And it was something I never knew, never learned. Mm. And learning it from Richard. Why the hell not? Obviously, and yeah. I was honored that he uh, sort of entrusted me to be part, part of that of journey. Mm. And that's when I joined him at, at the score. Man. And then you would be the score, and then after the score, you were, you moved on to FHF? No. Yes. So I was with the score for about a year and a half. Mm. Richard once again left me. <laughs> and at this point, I, I, did, I was questioning whether it was how I smelled. And, and, <laughs> but he just seemed to keep running away from me. And I would just follow. <laughs> but then I took over as editor of score. Okay. Then I realized why he ran away. <laughs> Because Richard always shielded us from all the bullshit mm. and drama. That mm. He just said, you all do your thing. Mm. Right. Yeah. Don't have to worry about the management madness. But right. when I came to a point where I had to be involved mm. in those things, mm. then it hit me. It was a huge learning curve, of okay. course. Uh, and I would consult him. Okay. How this, that, you know, like, what the hell, this went down. Like, why you left me with this shit? Like, damn you. <laughs> just ciao. But... It was interesting. I was more hands-on with the designers, the sales team, and, mm. and uh, hiring and grooming writers. Wow. You were still quite young, right? I mean... Yeah. Is that the This norm? was maybe... Uh, I mean, is that norm for, for, to be, for that to be like young editors? No, and... I was shit scared, man. Okay. Um, I, I always yeah. question myself, like, whether I am able to do... Mm. I want to. I know that. Mm. But I always overthink things. Do you think it is... So here's a funny thing, right? Like, um, do you think it is something that people... It is something that you will start feeling for yourself? Or is it something that people would have to tell you externally? In the sense of you having the... Knowing that you are... You know, you know what you're doing. And to kind of trust what you're doing. For me... So you're you're asking whether how would we know whether we do what we're doing is yeah I mean maybe it is it is not such an editorial question okay yeah. I mean not from that world but I'm just saying in general at what point do you consider yourself a professional or pro you know at what point mm. do you are you an expert at what point do we feel like we are subject matter experts you right. know 
And like even for me personally, when when now, I've been in merchandising for more than ten years, right? Mm. And along the time, I always feel like I'm still learning. I'm still It's studying. I'm still learning. Thing, I'm still learning. But then when I realize, you know, when when I speak to somebody on the outside, and then they refer to my experience, and they kind of rely on me to advise them, and then I realize that. Oh, okay. So yeah. they kind of see me as a you know kind of subject matter expert on on these things, and I realize that until somebody external kind of refers to you, you don't really kind of see it as such, lah. Perhaps, yeah. Maybe being an expert matter. I think if you're being judged or or by the people within that mm. same industry uh. and they acknowledge you as an expert. Then, mm. then. Ah, you. But okay. people from outside are always gonna look at you as an expert simply right. because you've been doing it for the longest time, mm. and with that ah, okay. time important. frame, you you have acquired a lot of knowledge and and things that you know because simply they weren't exposed to it. Mm. So how does of, that? So so you will okay. So you will kind of need your industry to kind of. I feel so. Okay. Like if someone who's been an OG journalist for mm. the longest time. Mm. Even acknowledges something that you've done, mm. written, whether it's one article or an initiative or something like that. Then mm. to me, then I wouldn't say you're an expert, but that right. is the kind of, yeah, you know, okay, uh, what you can feed off yeah. and sort of gauge. I'm in the right path. I'm doing the right thing, and maybe that'll be a nice motivation as well to just keep going. But like you said, it's a constant learning thing, and mm. I don't believe there'll ever be a time where I can fully I can fully confidently say I'm an expert in this. Mm. No, I'm learning, but I'm. I'm really enjoying the process, yeah. And and I, I mean, want... it's it's. Uh, I'm not trying to, kind of. I'm not trying to feed the ego in any way, right? But I think, you know, even when we, when you think about our daily lives, yeah, right, we always think, you know, like now with with the COVID and Corona and all that, you know, our our health minister Dr. Isham, he's you know he's the expert when it comes to this, yeah. Right? So we kind of, you go through life assigning, oh, these people are good at what they do. These people are good at what mm-hmm. they do, right? So. I think in a in an existential kind of crisis kind of way. When do you realize that you are the person that's best at whatever it is that you do, and at what point do you accept it and kind of embrace it? Like, I mean, this is you know we're getting way off topic, yeah. so to speak, right? <laughs> But when you when you when you mentioned that, I was just thinking to myself, like you know, at what point do any of us, you know, if somebody's been in you know in just say in IT networking all their life. At what point do they consider themselves uh, a subject matter expert, ah? or you know, or do they ever, or me, do they feel they're just an employee all their life or whatever? All right. For me, the quest has never been like you know to be an expert. Mm. Like, um, I think everyone's got their own different sets of goals or what they are working towards or what's that final end game, right? Mm. Like for me, if I were to eventually have the balls to publish a book, okay, even mm. one, mm. Mm. to me that is. Is that on the cards? Is that on the cards for you? It's been on the cards for the longest time. I just okay. Fiction, autobiography. Um, <laughs> no, I think it would not be fiction. Fiction writing isn't my thing. Okay, okay. I'm more of a experiential and observation mm. kind mm. of thing, and of course with satire, hopefully. Life of Moose. Is that what are we going for the title? I, I would say I've had enough <laughs> of a colorful past okay. to to incorporate some of my life experiences into what I want to write. end of the day I'm not writing for anyone else yeah yeah it is for me mm. and uh, there are stories that I want to sort of document and and put together mm. because mm. I moved around a lot mm. growing up stayed in Seychelles for two years I was you know all around so mm. with that you meet a whole bunch of different stayed people in Seychelles for two years yes when did that happen so I didn't do my UPSR okay um, at 
Standard 5. Okay. That means I was 11. Okay. My dad and I moved to Seychelles. And we stayed there for two years. This was um, 99, 2000. Why? How? Why? I mean, what so led? my what dad, I... like I mentioned, is an English teacher. Okay. But I don't know how he managed to score all these weird-ass school jobs. And okay. he started teaching in a government school in Seychelles. Okay. And I moved along with him. Wow. Mm. Just like that? Just like that. Dude, I've been to Seychelles, man. Oh. I mean... Which part? Uh, Mahi. Okay. Uh, that's the main one, right? Yes. Mahi is the main one. And what's the other one that people fly to or take a boat to? That's, uh, that's Praling, that's Silhouette, that's... Uh, I don't know. I could be Mahi or Praling. I'm not sure. The one that you fly... What, the, the one Ladik. that you fly to? The, major the fly one? to is Mahi. Uh, actually, it was a very weird one. was not planned at all. I only knew I was going to Seychelles two days before I flew to Seychelles. And one of my buddies, one of my closest friends... Who is a pilot in the Middle East? He's getting married, and it was just very impromptu. They were like eloping, and then so he was doing it in session. So he just let me know, and I was like, "Okay, so you're just gonna just you two are gonna get and like have like a honeymoon kind of thing by yourself?" He's like, "Yeah," and like, "No, who's gonna be a witness, right?" I was like, "Who's gonna be a witness and all that?" They're like, "Oh, he'll just pay the taxi driver to be his witness," and I was like, "What?" And I couldn't like what taxi driver? I was like, "No way." And this guy is a pilot, lah. So you right. get cheap tickets, right? So we on standby tickets. I say, I say, I'll call you back in a half an hour. I call up my wife; she's at work. And we go like, listen up, you know. Uh, he's getting married, and I can't imagine him getting married alone. It's like with a taxi, like, like, taxi driver. <laughs> yeah, like you know, like you know, because he said later they do a ceremony with family all, but I say I can't imagine him doing it alone. I was like, do you want to go to Seychelles, right? And she's like. Yeah, why not? <laughs> so we were on standby tickets. We just flew out the next day. We met him over there, and we all four of us flew to Seychelles. We were there like for five, oh, five oh, days. Lovely place, right? Dude, I love the place, man. I, I it's super expensive, it super is, duper yeah. expensive. Because everything is imported. It is insanely expensive, but I, I you know, I, I love the takamaka rum. I mean, dude, I was too young to try okay, all okay, that. Okay, okay. Takamaka. I was like, I saw beers. They have this local <laughs> brew called Say Brew. Ah yeah, um, might have snuck a few, <laughs> <laughs> but it's so beautiful. I think one of the best beaches. I know mean, the lagoons, dude. Like you're walking, you know, it's just like maybe knee deep water. So you could clear. see like you know stingrays in the water, and yeah. I was just like, I don't want to get killed. <laughs> but everybody's just cool with it, right? The water is perfect, so clean. It I mean, is. Oh man, it was paradise. It is literally. The most gorgeous place I've, I've been to, and I really did not want to come back. Mm. But uh, there was some family stuff that we so we okay. came up. But the two years there, man, super memorable. And there's a huge Indian community in Seychelles, yeah. right? Like almost every other shop is yeah. Kumar. So place the or... the Chinese and the Indians have most of the grocery stores and and some. Ah, I didn't have spotted any Chinese oh, grocery God. stores. Got a lot, huh? Mm. Ah. so it was colonized by the French. Mm. They speak Creole. Yeah, Creole. Yeah. Mm. So I picked up French, picked up Creole there. Yeah, I went yeah. to the government school, which was great because, you know, you're exposed mm-hmm. like like you're mixing around with the flares. You have to pick up the language and and learn their ways and whatnot. Nice, man. so much I, fun. I love the place. I I really love the place. And I was when I first went there, I was a bit. I didn't know what it was. I just thought it was like a island holiday destination kind of deal. And then at the car rental at the airport, I was like. You know, we on a rental car, and then you know, this lady was just making small talk with me. Oh yeah, you're here for business or pleasure. And then I looked at her. 
no, who the fuck comes to sessions for business? I'm here for pleasure. And then she looks at me like, you fucking idiot. Most people come here for business. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, all the major uh, banks like Barclays and all. Yeah, yeah. Barclays. They all have offshore offices all over the place there. And they say, people come here for like work, as in for financial reasons, hint, hint, whatever. So the idiots who come there for a holiday is actually the minority. <laughs> and I felt so stupid. <laughs> I was like, you know, and I think that reflects on the cost of living of the place because everything, you know, if it was just an island destination for a holiday, it wouldn't be that expensive. But they have some top restaurants there. You know, everything's in euros. You know, it's not even in dollars, right? Everything is in euros and all that. Man, but a beautiful place. I mean, I really liked it. <laughs> so two years there, lucky bugger, man. Yeah, so uh, the whole uh, Y2K millennium thing was celebrated there. Wow. Wow. Uh, gorgeous, lah. Every day you're walking past the beach, you're seeing people playing checkers yeah. under coconut trees. You know, mm. super chill vibe. Uh, yeah, I always saw people getting drunk, like always, <clears> like <throat> for getting drunk. Like I saw, like there was one, like we were driving past. There was like one wedding procession happening, like in this big house, and then like literally, like like some men were just drunk and like falling down on the, the garden outside it's like so you oh. saw that too bloody hell. because it's it's true i would be on an innocent day getting groceries with my dad taking the bus home and you'd see a drunk guy chasing another guy with a machete <laughs> just another day in seychelles yeah and they keep giant tortoises as pets now Stop. we're talking wow yeah you we're talking giant you know those those that live up for like forever years. You can sit on top of them kind of thing on the shell and they'll be moving around and on that. Yeah. They keep that as pets. I found out the hard way. Came back from school uh, the, one, one day. Okay. And I heard this weird sound from the jungle. Okay. I'm like, what the shit is that in the jungle right now? But being a curious kid who had more balls than I do now, <laughs> I just walked into the source of the sound and I saw two giant tortoises mating. It's quite traumatizing for an 11-year-old kid. With it. No, actually, now that you mention it, one of the restaurants had like a like a, uh, a pet. Like the, not, I, I suppose it's a pet because it was like a big enclosure, and they had like this huge tortoises yeah, there. And then we went just, so black parrots. It's what they keep for pets. Black parrots. Parrots. Yeah. Okay. What's up with black parrots? Basically, you have your colorful parrots. These are just more depressing, <laughs> emo, goth-like versions of these birds that they keep as pets. Is amazing. I think one of the things I found interesting is. You know, I mean, and I, it's a very stereotypical thing to say, but I found that it it kind of challenged my, my stereotypes. Like, is, you know, generally we are always sold this idea of, of Africa, mm. of, you know, being poor, struggling, blah, blah, right? And then when I was in Seychelles, most of the wealthy people I was seeing were Africans. Like, most of the people were eating at the expensive restaurants, staying at the, the hotels and all that. I didn't see too many Europeans. I mean, yeah, there were Europeans, but most of them there seem to be... But I think when you say Africans, you mean the locals themselves. I I, I don't know. Because I, I, they, I, they... Tourists. I, I don't know oh, whether they are... They are it should I, be because um, generally the locals there look like Africans. They, yeah, yeah. Technically then, Africa, right? I mean... Uh, is, yes. Right? So yeah. it's... So seeing that, you know, the, this whole stigma of, you know, seeing Africa, Africans is always... Yeah. fighting poverty kind of deal, right? This is a whole thing that we are sold at. And then to go there and see that, you know, the money, the wealth, you know, being spent there and realize that, man, we need to travel more. Like, we need to get out more, so see much more, see. understand more. Because, you know, the average Malaysian's stereotype of Africans is so yeah. bad. I mean, we are especially, I think, very bad. Like. 
right? But it's just not true. Uh, I was lucky enough uh, to go to a college where some of my friends were Africans. Of course, these guys were like ambassador kids and all that. So I was like, whoa, shit, this guy's a big deal, right? Mm. So I don't have that stereotype of, you know, uh, but man, going there kind of, woohoo, I can move there. I right. can imagine moving there. I remember Nasi Goreng costs like uh, 30 euros. Oh, no. Yeah, but no, it was like a, it was literally like a, we don't have those in Malaysia anymore. You know, those roadside stalls, right? Literally, those roadside stalls going to fall off the cliff kind of deal. Nasi Goreng, fried rice, 25 euros. So, yeah, when I say expensive, I was like, every time I ate, I was like, man, it's like going to the Hilton, right? <laughs> every roadside meal. Uh, but yeah, interesting. So, two years there. So, you were saying you never did UPSR? I know. So, when I came back, my BM was so bad. So, when you came back, how do you, you just went back to college or? No, I came back when I was 14, so from 2 in Penang. Oh. So, from 2 till from 5, I was in Penang. And then that's when I... You're a Penang boy. Penang boy, yeah. But wow. I... Born in Penang. Okay. But I wouldn't state that I... I probably lived here in KL more than I have in Penang. Richard also Penang boy, right? Yes. Ah, that's many similarities. Like, see these parallels. In, okay. Wow. Okay. So, okay. I know there's a massive... Segment, <laughs> Shout out We just to took a detour to say <laughs> <laughs> No, man. I, I, and I remember, right? And why I say it's expensive is... It is known that it's expensive... So much so that um, we, we were swimming in the pool and then the the, the hotel, one of those um, guys came up to us from the hotel and he's like, hey, would you guys want a, a seafood dinner? Uh, we just caught some fresh catch and all that. And we were like, yeah, sounds good. Uh, is it going to cost us extra? Yeah, yeah the dinner will be separate. And it's like, oh, how much is it for like four people? Oh, it's just 700 euros, right? And the, the guy who's talking to us is an Indian dude, right? So, and I look at him like, dude, that's a lot of money. And then he looks at me, so I just go like, welcome to Seychelles. And I got welcome to Seychelles at so many points, right? <laughs> Where it's like, dude, this is expensive. Get, you know, like, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. Welcome to Seychelles. I will definitely want to go back there. Whatever I said, I definitely want to go back there. Not just please. And, uh, okay. So... Coming back to, mm-hmm. given all your travels, so to speak, right? Um, are you working on the book? Or? I There were several attempts. Okay. It's being worked on in parts. Okay. As I recall something, an interesting chapter. Okay. I would just work on that. And then so you do you have like clippings or writings of stuff that, do you have I, it saved or it's just like in your mind right now? No, I do have it written a little bit. Okay. And... Uh, But more more than that, I do have a lot of random books and notebooks, which is random phrases and quotes and words and and stuff that. You I know, would... I keep all my diaries for the last ten years, and I flip through them. Right, if if I ever become a millionaire or a billionaire, mm-hmm. you can use this as a manual. <laughs> But it is just my diaries are just my to do list. Right, every day, what I want to tackle. It's it. It's just a to do list, right? So, and I'm like looking at it like. Why the fuck am I keeping this shit? It's <laughs> it's going to serve no purpose, but I can't bring myself to even throw Part them history, away. Your history, so look yeah. back and like, oh shit, I did that. You know, but you know, uh, one of these people that I know, uh, it's call him an advisor lah. One thing he said was was telling me that to kind of appreciate your life, you know, he, one of the exercises he asked me to do is 
look back at your life as long as you can remember, right? So if I'm 35 going on 36, am I 36? I don't know, 36, I guess. So if I'm 36 years old, right, as far as I can remember, maybe 30 years, right? And kind of try and document your life in terms of, you know, any type of milestones, good and bad, right? And you're telling me that most probably you would have to talk to your family, you know, whoever's around, especially your parents for the early days and all that. And year by year, try and get a feel of, you know, your milestones on each of the years, right? Whether it's graduating or, you know, or I started wearing my glasses or I started playing football or a musical instrument, whatever it is, right? And then his advice was, once you kind of paint a picture for yourself for the last 30 years or whatnot, his, his observation was, you'll start seeing a rhythm to your life, right? When things are working out, going well, and maybe when things you don't feel so good, and you're looking at it, at it from a macro point of view. That means you're not seeing day by day, you're seeing almost year by year, right? So you think you'll, you'll start to see patterns, right? And more than that, you'll start to kind of have a better appreciation of your life. Because mm. right now, we always feel, most of the time, we feel for what we feel like today, yeah. right? And we don't seem to have an appreciation for the life that we have kind of lived, right? And so I kind of tried it. I didn't do it very well. I kind of tried that exercise. And then I realized that there's a lot of gaps that I don't even remember, right? Hey, I don't remember what happened this year and that year. Like, how can you forget a whole year? Like, no milestones. I started talking to people, looking at my Facebook for more recent. <laughs> hey, what are the posts on these years and all that? And it really gives you a, a better perspective. Lah. And then mm. he was saying, and why I bring that up was his perspective was he was saying that, you know, imagine you're going to write a book about yourself, right? right? And what would you need? What would be the chapters of your life, right? So this was not publishing advice. This was just kind of reflect on your life kind of advice, right? Yeah. So in that sense, I think everybody should do it. Yeah. You know, at least to to appreciate your own life wherever we Because sometimes we tend to think that only successful people or perceived to be successful people have, are worthy of are having telling their stories. Life. Yeah, and to a large extent, the, the reason I'm, why I'm doing this podcast as well is that, you know, when I talk to people, I realize that most of the people I talk to are pretty fucking interesting, right? And they're not necessarily celebrities or billionaires and all that. But we all have very interesting stories to share. I mean, if, you know, sometimes I, when my gardener is cutting the grass, this guy's from Bangladesh, I just got there and talked to him for a while. He's got stories to yeah, tell. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, like, no, I did not know that's how the world operates on that side of the world, right? So in the sense that this idea that you must be someone worthy before you can share your story that kind of like kind of broke it for me like. so mm. in the sense that you know we are we all have very interesting stories and it'd be nice to have more platforms telling these stories oh yeah man i mean but we do right i mean in the sense that technically anybody can go onto youtube and whatnot <laughs> as in we're talking about like media media publications and all those yeah. kind of stuff whether it gets wind uh, and whether it, it, it grows uh, but okay that kind of brings us to you know you were saying what you're doing now is not so related to media um yeah i, I would say after uh, let's call it a hiatus from no, it's not a hiatus because I'm still doing what I want to do, <laughs> but by the side. It's just not a full-time job anymore. Okay. Mm. And so it's a funny thing because even when I was talking to to Richard as well, he also seems to 
uh, he s- seems to also be saying that he's uncoupling himself from this idea of being a media publishing person. Of course, he's now like he's he says he's a content for hire uh, kind of deal. He content slut lah. <laughs> yeah, I no, think but, you would prefer to say no, that. But, no, uh, but my, my my curiosity is actually: is there a reason why people like uh, you know you and Richard? Yes, are moving out of this space because it's just too difficult to fight the fight constantly. Um, and if I would, if if I ask you the question, if I were to play the devil's advocate, and if I was on the big bad corporate side, right? Yep. Why would it? What interest does it serve me to have creative people like you know you, Richard, and probably many others leave the industry? How does it serve me? Right? It hurts me more than it serves me. Right? I don't think they even care. Oh, you okay? Really? I mean, it doesn't. It, I really don't see them thinking like, "Oh man, oh we lost a good one." Oh, no, nah, none of that shit. It's move on to the next disposable. But they are monetizing creativity and content, which no, they no. don't produce. They are money. not monetizing creativity. Okay. Their content is based off monetization. That's a difference. No, you gotta educate me on this. You gotta educate me on that. Okay, help me understand that. So my point, this boils down to like when I said how certain brands should have their DNAs and guidelines and, and brand rules set, right? Okay. The do's and don'ts. Okay. The clear borders that mm-hmm. should not be crossed. Mm-hmm. When there are none of those mm-hmm. or when they are ignored or, or overlooked, okay. then there's a risk of bastardizing the content at, for the purpose of reach or money, okay. revenue solely, right? Okay then it becomes hard. You see, when you want to create brand loyalty and all those kind of things, let's look at uh, Vice. Mm. Vice started very rock and roll. Mm. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, mm. taboo stories, mm. stories that were not being told. Okay. There was a void for these stories because big corporations find it too racy, too sensitive to be told. Mm. If we cannot, if they didn't, couldn't do it under a corporation, they do it on their own. That mm. was their whole thing. A bunch of people got together journalists mm. who wanted to tell stories mm. but these stories were just not acceptable or were not permitted to be told on a majority of platforms mm. what do we do we tell it ourselves we tell it the way we want to on mm. our platform okay reach started coming in these are interesting stories right you don't have to boost you don't that time we go buy reach and mm. all that kind of stuff it's pure mm. organic mm. reach and everyone wanted to be a part of them because through their content which people really liked reading or enjoyed mm. through these stories that were not being told enough came the reach mm. through this reach comes money mm. just give it time okay if you go in we launch one month oh yeah why are our numbers not same as this that mm. or whatever who've been around for five years what kind of logical comparison is that yeah why don't you make a comparison when they were first born first year mm. into infancy how were they doing let's do a side-by-side comparison that way mm. you know but but you know my simplified mind the way i would imagine is if if these guys, if these executives are working in industries like publishing, right? That means you you're not a cookie cutter executive, like you're an executive to serve this industry, right? Where this industry is supposed to be about quality content, it's supposed to be about. I think you have uh, naive, very, very naive. Yeah, uh, you have a in an idealistic world. Mm idealistic editorial setting yes right. you have people who understand content true and true mm. and and want to monetize that said content but mm. the realities are you get people who handle the business who may not necessarily come from a content background mm. they just know how to monetize things mm. 
without much uh, care or involvement into the output. They just they have no time. You think mm. if uh, an owner of a company actually reads all the articles that's being published in your magazine or website, mm. then chances are you know you're headed in the right direction. Mm, that's interesting. No, because you know the way I approach things is usually is you know I would the only reason I would want to monetize something is so that it, there's 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 resources to keep doing that thing. Yes. Like that means if you are if you have a great magazine, we should be good at monetizing it so that we can put out more great content. Yeah. I mean, I would think of it like that, right? And I assume everybody thinks of it like that. But you're saying that executives don't necessarily see that, you know, that they, they, they kind of disconnect from the creative side to the commercial side, so to speak. So yeah. then it becomes the editor's role to sort of find that balance. Okay. Mm. Okay. We understand your needs. We are of a client. We understand the needs of the company. Mm. How are we going to achieve this? And at the same time, provide the readers the quality content, stuff with value that they want and deserve. See, you, you have this unique uh, perspective because you have kind of gone from established brands, print publications like FHM, uh, you know, Lime, New Man, The Score. Okay, New Man, The Score this called the younger magazine and going from that to something like Roja Daily which is purely digital right if I'm not mistaken how does it compare uh, in terms of strategies in terms okay. of how does a purely digital strategy versus uh, a print strategy work you know in terms of do creatives have more say or less say or everything's about that, um, whether it's print or Digital, who has more say doesn't change. Okay. The only thing that changes is how you are presenting your stories. Okay. So if I were to, from an outside looking in, right, what are the markers for print versus digital? Digital, I can imagine it's the clicks, the views. Those would be the markers in terms of what are the eyeballs that we have, right? If it is print, what is it? Is advertising revenue or circulation or what? Circulation. So the equivalent of reach, digital reach would be circulation. Okay. And in Malaysia, what's a good number for... for now? <laughs> I have no okay, idea. Maybe you now you have 10 like years. Like, maybe you go 500 back 500 circulations so you celebrate. And <laughs> That's it's a sad, I, right? It's a sad reality. Like I, I read like Blue Ink is, you know, is no more or has shut down, right? Or something like Last that. Last I heard, it was... And so, yeah, man, I mean, it's... It's that, that um, print. It isn't in, like, isn't on the decline. It has... Gone. Died. Okay. Uh, you know, like, that, that phase a few years ago, mm. when a whole bunch of local magazines started getting cut off, that, mm. that was it. That was the whole... And so, transition. so now, the, the, say, the new digital landscape, when I say new, it's current. The current landscape is fully digital, right? How does it change in terms of from an editorial point of view? Because People at least the magazines less... had like, you know, you had a month to plan. To plan without having, you know, any executives on your ass. Because your result is the publication and then the publishing gets judged. But at least you have a time to run up to it, right? But with digital, I just feel every day you're putting out content. Every day or most yeah. days you're putting out content. And Which... then every content is being judged instead of as a whole. You're looking at every piece of content and suddenly yes. it's... Yes, you're right. There's more scrutiny to each and every piece of content that goes up digitally now. 
because everything can be tracked, right? Like, yeah. Um, how many? How long people reading this article for? Are they bouncing after a while? Uh, you know, to reach the numbers of clicks. So what do they? Pressure. What? what yeah. What do they care about? I mean, what? What do the people who make the calls care about? Ultimately, is ultimately is 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 views versus the yeah, advertising revenue lah that comes in. Does Roja really generate advertising revenue? Yeah. So the back then mm-hmm. in print. You would have your inside back covers, mm-hmm. outside back covers. You know, right. prime locations that you know. It's like when you pick F behind, you have Hennessy. Yeah, yeah. That was the prime spots and whatnot. Websites, your banners, mm. places here and there, or uh, banner content. Mm. So articles that have been written for a client based on whatever they want to push, mm. whether it's a product or a campaign or launch. That'd be like an editorial kind of. Editorial, yes. Okay, so in terms of, but you need to have a balance. What's the balance of advertorial content versus um, organic content? Is there an balance? Back then, magazines, yes, because you have the limitations of pages, space, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> Good month if you have a lot of advertisers, a lot okay. of pages, you may have to sacrifice some content pages. Mm. That's a good problem to have. Okay. Oh, we got too many people coming in this this month. Now. Anyone can advertise at any time because space is not an issue online. So, but okay. So, the reason I'm asking is even after talking to like Richard and, mm. and you as well, right? I do get a very grim view of the industry, right? So, if I were to, <laughs> so if I were to, you know, give, you know, you a blank slate, right? Okay. And, and to kind of, if you were to imagine, what you, what your utopia of a media landscape, or at least from a publishing, digital publishing point of view, right? How would, uh, to say, if we are starting a magazine, uh, online magazine, digital content platform now, what would it need to look at and what would needs to be the structure behind as a corporate structure to allow it to kind of work? What what would be your utopia for that? I mean, what, what would that look like? Or you think it's just... So like a... A modern day editorial structure for yeah. like a new site or something. Yeah. If you were to do this today and somebody were to park a lot of money with you to get it done, right. how would you do it? Or what needs to be it, done? It really, there's no like secret from the when I, when I will tell you, it just all boils down to it being common sense. For example, okay. guideline, brand book first. Mm. What is this brand? Who are you? What is the DNA? What do you stand for? Who is okay. the target audience? Who you're reaching out to? Okay. Um, what is the purpose? Okay. And what do you want your readers to get out of it? Are you a niche? Like, you know, are you only focusing on certain things or mm. is it a wider scope? Find your... Because as much as there is joy in writing or covering anything and everything, mm. having such a wide gap in terms of, you know, lack of focus mm. will bite you in the ass when it comes to trying to instill brand loyalty and, and readership. Okay. Mm. So okay. have that thing. Find your community, your people. Mm. Speak their language. Get the right team members, editorial team members, writers, and whatnot who speak their language as well. And I think definitely now you would have to do video content. Mm. Goes without saying. Mm. You, mm. but which is a good thing. Like one of the things I enjoyed transitioning from print to digital. When I joined the, the print industry, it was already in its early stages of digitalization. Okay. Right. So being youngish and okay. someone who is more um, savvy okay. I would use Facebook mm. I would use all those things mm. all the magazines that I joined mm. I would um, 
take the initiative to revive its digital presence. Mm. Okay. With FHM, I introduce behind-the-scene videos, mm. web-exclusive content. Mm. When you have content with value, web-exclusive, these kind of things, you cannot... Okay, what's the point? You buy the magazine, you see the mm. photo shoots, mm. <clears throat> or the articles, the stories, the interviews, then you go online, you see the same stuff. Right, what? doesn't make sense. Uh, mm. You know, there needs to be some value, right? Mm. If I didn't care, the, the fastest way would just to be replicated. Yeah, and the web... One was free, la. in a sense, you yes. didn't have to buy... Also, you wouldn't have KDN breathing down your, your neck. Because with the magazine, you're constantly <laughs> under scrutiny where they're like, oh, nee, double, nee, oh nee, so there's nee, a definition, nee. I mean, uh, there's a technical definition between print, uh, what you're allowed to do on print versus yeah, what you're allowed yeah. to put on your website. Yeah. Oh, wow. They don't just blanket website also scrutinize. I don't know whether they do now. Okay. But back then, you got away with... Oh, with, man. FHM, that's a lot of room to play. Yeah, but... Basically, what I'm getting at is have have an idea of your brand, what it is, who you're representing, who your target is. Would you do a print publication at this point? No. Not uh, maybe not monthly for sure. Okay. Now, let's take MCO. Putting right. MCO aside itself, Malaysians mm. uh, generally don't subscribe to mm. magazines. I think the only thing that subscribes to is Reader's Digest. Like, probably still going strong till today. Mm. Every household somewhere will have... And, right. Until all our parents <laughs> forget to renew their <laughs> to renew their, their, I think lifetime. Yeah, memory. I, I do feel there's there's a space in the in in the, the pockets of niche, right? In a sense that even up to this day, I I still buy Top Gear, right? Like okay. the magazine, right? And not I, not the local one though. The right? local one. The local one. I I don't buy the. I don't like to buy the international edition only because I feel so disconnected from the content. From the type of cars and whatnot no, as well. I yeah. mean, the type of cars is there, but then, you know, like, you know, the prices are in pounds. And yeah. I cry every time I look at it. I'm like, that's not the price we're okay. going to end up paying. And so I, I like the, I like content that I feel I can relate to, right? And so you still, she buy this? I, I still do. I mean, I have not gone out much between MCO, but right. when I do spot it, and it's I'm available not. like where your popular My News, My News yeah, and whatnot. Yeah. So, but it's harder, man. Even now when I go to My News, they say they don't carry this. And I see the, uh, the magazine rack is like shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. There's not much... Circulation is low. Like, probably they just allocate quite... Yeah, My News is just going to rebrand to a candy shop. Like, I'm mm -hmm. telling you. you know, because it used to be tons of magazines, papers, blah, blah. And then some you know confectionery stand, right? Now it's one big confectionery stand with one stand for the publication. And then you realize the Getting brand smaller, is my smaller. news is like, you know, totally. But I feel there's this, because for me is, uh, I think I was mentioning to another person the other day, is for me to be able to have something in my hand. Because if I'm a fan right. or something, right, to have something tangible yeah. means a lot, right? The problem with digital is it's not it so gives personal. you no ownership, right? In, in the sense that if, if I like, oh, this new Ferrari came out and I love this Ferrari, so I buy a magazine with that Ferrari, somehow I feel I, I own, you know, I don't own the Ferrari, obviously, but I own a version of it in a magazine, right? Yeah. But even if that same magazine is free online on a website that I can view anytime, you, there's no ownership, right? Yeah. It is such a disconnected... Uh, so I do feel that there's... I don't know how to, be, how to figure it out, but I feel there's pockets of opportunity where... Yeah, if done right, definitely... Yeah. Yeah, uh, and this it boils down to like just let the editors and writers do their thing. They know content. Mm. They they know what readers want to read, mm. having already consumed so much content themselves. Yeah. So they know how to present it, how to to voice it, how to present. You know, and 
then people read. I really miss the whole element of you know you have magazine contests and whatnot. You have editors and all people sending letters. Yeah, that whole thing is just almost non-existent yeah. already. But my concern actually is also uh, now that I have a kid, right? So I'm kind of thinking, how is this little kid going to grow up? So I kind of compare to my life as in how I was growing up, and of course things will change, right? I mean, sure. when when I was you know three, four, five years old, there's no internet. I think I only got internet in my teens, right? And but I realized that it is not the thing, right? It's the experience, right? Yeah. You know, growing up, I could you know suddenly there's a new series of dinosaur magazines that I collect every month, yeah, and yeah. then you assemble the dinosaur and like all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So in the sense that whatever I had at the time, there was a sense of owning and sense of like, oh, I'm learning this, it's mine, I'm kind of growing with this. And now the new reality of, of digital, right? You don't own anything. In yeah. fact, if anything, you just own a device, right? Temporarily, and it doesn't it's, feel it's, like... Yeah, it's own. like just a device, it's a phone or a tab. So suddenly there's, there's tons of content. There's you know, too much content, right? But how you feel towards the content is very, I feel like very agnostic. Like, you know, so how do you make, so the question I ask myself is also, how do I make him care enough about something? You know, you know, so when I say, you know, do you like cars? What does he have to show that he likes cars, right? In right. Terms, you know, do you like this? Do you like music? Suddenly you don't have vinyls, you don't have magazines. I'll all be there on the phone now. Yeah, cars, so, music, everything that I like. Yeah, so in the, in the sense that in in terms of content, yes, it is <clears throat> the most efficient, superior way of delivering content. But in terms of building uh, emotional mm. relationship with the content, I feel like it's you yeah. don't care. You just simply don't care for it. You That's watch true. it. The minute you watch it, is done. Sad. You don't care for it, right? So, I feel there's still a tangible space, but I don't know whether people can even bother to figure it out because it's so expensive and it's seen as traditional. One thing I really never figured out was why there's never been a proper like a music mm. you, know, like you have your Rolling Stones and Enemies and mm. whatnot great mm. music magazines. Locally I've yeah, always been hungry that. for local music uh, mm. content like mm. Tell me the story of your Yogi Bees and Rishmore News and mm. all this Amy Search and Audis yeah. and, and there's no documentation, there's no documentaries, select number of books, mm. no publications covering these things. Mm. So much rich content there. Like our music, yeah, like Tamil hip hop, for instance, mm. is on a global scale. Like we literally put Tamil hip hop on the world map. And, really? Yeah? And yet no one knows these stories and there's not much. So this is something that I've always wanted, along with like stories of other things that I want to tell. Mm. The story of Malaysian musicians, I feel, mm. is something that just needs to so be. So I'm going to tell you something that I've actually said a couple of times, and I even said to Richard as well. <laughs> I think you should start a podcast. <laughs> I <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it for the sake of saying it, but the fact that that world that you're describing, in terms of when you say for me, when you say music. I don't think Malaysian music, right? I think music, or I or listen to whoever it is, right? And the fact that there's that we as a country probably know more about the shenanigans of Kanye and Kim than what we do of our own superheroes yeah, back yeah. here, that's a problem. I mean, it really is, and it's not like Malaysian musicians already have it easy mm. uh, in terms of 
album sales or, or making mm. money as mm. a whole. Mm. And on top of that, they put so much effort into their their work, mm. and these things go untold, mm. unnoticed. Mm. Uh, people don't know. Mm. It's a waste. The people who are in the right positions or know the right people probably have an upper hand at, at you know in terms of marketing and getting their names and songs out there. Mm. But what about the whole bunch of crazy talent? No, I think even more than that, right? Is is the fact that for me, if you if somebody talks to me about oh they are interested in becoming a rapper, right? My mind goes to New York. Or the US, or and I imagine all these guys, right? And the reality of this person here in Malaysia compared to what you know we see on TV and, and all that is so different, right? For me, it seems unachievable, right? I feel like what are you talking about? It looks like a very unachievable dream. But the reality is, if we can connect the dots, that to, if you're saying, like, if, if we talk enough about local musicians local uh, you know the local music scene and we kind of like build that uh, interest and support for local content when somebody says they want to be a rapper and then suddenly they are drawing references to oh this guy in Klang Yogi B I'm assuming he's from Klang by the way <laughs> I don't know if he is <laughs> right but just say like yeah. uh, suddenly it becomes you know that's half an hour right away from me I probably can beg him to have a coffee with me and talk. So suddenly it becomes very, not achievable, it becomes a reality like that if I really want to go down to this world, I can, right? But we have, by not highlighting local content, we kind of made it like a pipe dream. Mm. Oh, you want to be a oh, rock star? Like, who are you looking at? Looking at fighters? You know, oh, our life's so different, people here are different. Da, da, da. Suddenly, but if you highlight our local rock stars, you know, I said, if you really want to, and if you're good, obviously, if you're good, then there's a world that you can build there. Lah. Yeah, and I think you should do it. <laughs> that, well, yes, uh, you, okay, you know your ROTTWs, right? This, no? No, no. Okay, no. locally, I would, based on my knowledge, I'm okay. but as far as I know, you have a few music dedicated portals and, and ROTTW okay. is like the OG, the granddaddy of okay. Malaysian music uh, okay. publications. Started okay. off with magazine, digital, but... Does it stand not... for something? That... Uh... Rhythm of the Third World, okay. I believe, is what okay. I... Nice. What the, okay. I yeah. mm. But um, I would say it's niche. Okay. They're, they're doing what they do and they're doing their part great. And mm. But uh, there's also English content which is not being covered. And other vernaculars, like I said, like Tamil mm. rap and mm. whatnot. Mm. You have your vernacular maybe websites mm. that may or may not cover Chinese artists and mm. Indian songs or whatnot. But where is your one whole yeah. go-to uh, website that covers everything local? No, no, no. Like there's no boundaries, yeah. If you're Malaysian and you're good, and there's a mm. story that words be told, uh, tell that story. Yeah. So when I was um. Now this boils down to me. Every every website or, or magazine that I was with, mm-hmm. I there was a music segment. Okay. I loved the music segment. <laughs> okay. I would take charge of the music segment. It's okay. We don't need to hire people. Like you okay. know, uh, I I want to write and cover this thing. So that's when I would take uh, my fanboy moment mm-hmm. and and go and interview people who I used to listen to their songs. Like I know Grish Monu's mm-hmm. song and mm-hmm. Oite Camo and Dragon Red and a whole bunch of different great artists. Mm-hmm. 
and now I get to interview them and it was fun for me it was like I really loved it because yeah. throughout my whole time as a journalist from Lime mm. one of the things I did in Lime was review albums back then when uh, Sony and Universal used to send physical CDs mm. before everyone else gets yeah. it there was this thrill of I'm listening to something before everyone else mm. listen to it write the reviews that was mm. fun then from that I started going into interviewing the artists themselves and whatnot. And fortunately, down the line, came to a point where we could do videos, mm. you know. And I met Oiji. Okay. Went to their studio to do a story. Basically, I wanted to find out about 60s TV in the okay. song, right? And the whole thing that went right. to... So, this was a series of... Um, it was a video series that I started. Mm. And I... This just started wanted, under what? FHM or...? No, this was under um, Rojadip. Okay. And we wanted, I just wanted to find out, everyone knows these songs. Everyone right. knows Hey Money, you know, like Hey Wale and, mm. and Money Money and all these songs yeah. from them. But who knows about what they went through to putting it together. Mm. Back then, music videos were so interesting. You had big sponsors like your Pepsis and whatnot. Mm. And you didn't have the online digital marketing tools that you have now. Mm. YouTube, Facebook, one. there was a lot of effort right. shooting it, conceptualizing it and whatnot. Now you put lyric videos, Ojadi, but back then... Mm. Oh, this is our single from this album. We want to make it big and whatnot. Mm. So I was curious. Spoke to them about the stories. When I met uh, OEG, mm. I noticed there's a book uh, on OEG. Okay. I was like, wait, someone actually wrote a book about OEG. Mm. I didn't know. I mean, I, I was fascinated that there was a local author mm. where she took the time and initiative and trouble mm. to write a book about a local band. There must be some something there. There must be some passion yeah. or he really believed in it and he wanted to. Yeah. That was the whole appeal. I told um, the drummer, mm. Chi of mm. uh, OEG, I said, I want to... I want to." <laughs> I did not know that. So that's basically just the, the their names, OEG, spelled out? I mean... No, it's basically a book written about the history of OEG. Okay, mm. okay. So... I saw this book because I, I'm, like I said, there's a lack of uh, documentation on, on local musicians, be it mm. in video form or mm. books and whatnot. And I saw mm. a book on OEG. Right. I knew OEG. Okay. And because I traveled so much, I didn't get to live the Malaysian music scene in the 90s or 2000s. I was okay. very much at the mercy of where I was. Okay. Suddenly, I'm Sungai Ptani Min, sorry lah. I'm, okay. I'm playing Chongka and Wow and not listening to local music. You know, I'm in Seychelles. I'm like, you know, hunting some shit in the jungle. <laughs> it was just so disconnected. But when right. I kind of came back to KL and I was here for the longest time, hmm. I started being exposed to more local musicians, whether hmm. through live bands and whatnot. And I was realized, I realized that there's so much stories that were not being told or haven't been told. Yeah. And so I was very excited when I saw the OEG book. I said, can I buy this of you? Hmm. Said, just take I said, no, no, no. there's a book. I want to I wanna, I wanna yeah. buy it. Let me know how much it is. And, yeah. Because I didn't see it being sold anywhere. Yeah. I didn't see it anywhere. Read it. It was so nice. I got transported back to the old days of Positive Tone. and, and Positive uh, Tone. I remember that. Wow. <laughs> and Yogi and, and mm. uh, Too Fat and whatnot. <laughs> and then I checked who wrote the book. Mm. And the author's name mm. was a fellow FHM editor from back then. You knew this person? So I... When I was with FHM and mm. we were being shut down. Okay. And I went through the seven stages of grief. This was when you were editor? You were, you were... Yeah, basically, when there was a phase when all the magazines, a lot of magazines were being shut down. Okay. FHM included because FHM UK okay. uh, went on a hiatus. They didn't shut down. Okay. They went on a hiatus. We had the option of continuing or, or um, closing Stop as well, but mm. they went for that. Yep. So with, with, uh, with FHM, you could see that um, the, the, the 
type of stories that were being told and everything were what lost my trail of thought. What were we talking about? You're talking about you were saying about music, OEG, the book, yes. so this positive guy, tone. This author ah. was also a previous uh, yeah. previous editor of yeah. FHM. So yeah. I got in touch with him when I was doing the closing ceremony of FHM. Right. I wanted to get testimonials from all the old editors and whatnot, and he was one of it, lah. Okay. Mzu Kifli is his name. So I said, hey, what familiar name? So I got in touch with him. Mm. I just wanted to tell him that I really thought what he did was awesome. Okay. Like I said, man, I appreciated the amount of effort that you've put into mm. actually going and doing the story and digging through and interviewing these people and whatnot. And it was a very fun book to read that transported me back. Right. And um, he was happy that there was that form of, mm. uh, you know, that someone actually read and, and yeah. appreciated the book. And it was a great thing. But the launch was not as big as it should have been. And I, can't, mm. I didn't reach out to that many people. Yeah. But then I wanted to work with him because this guy was really passionate about local music, clearly. Right. If you're going to write a book, that's a lot of dedication and commitment right there. And I really mm. respect that. And especially as someone who's always wanted to write a book. I was yeah. like, man, you just nailed it. Spoke to him. Um, long story short, we both shared the same vision that there's a void of mm. local mm. content being mm. covered in terms of you know how it's being yeah. written, whether in video and article form. And so we started something. Oh, nice. Yeah, and basically... Just to satisfy that itch of telling okay. the stories that we want to tell. Okay. Um, we now have a platform to do so. And Would I know the platform? Is okay. it available? Can I, can I go? Oh, yeah, it's called gendang.com.my. Gendang? G-E-N-D-A-N-G. Gendang, like a, the drum. drum like, okay. yeah. And then, so, this is just pet project, two people. Yeah. So, because I left the industry and I was like, mm. very, I still wanted to write about things that I'm passionate about. Okay. I could not let that go. Through... I left because now I can grow in terms of learning a different side of the editorial and writing world where it's not so much for a media platform, okay. but it could be you know, for a different setting, for a different, like a corporate company and whatnot. Right. But inside that itch to write about local music or just music in general, or that itch to write as mm. a whole was still there. So I used to have a blog back then in college when I used to just do for myself, right. satisfy that itch. Mm. Now I wanted to do so for, but on a, Larger scale. Okay. So, Gendang, uh, just, just kind of walk me through it. It is two of you. So, yeah, we got together and we said, hey, man, okay. I want to tell stories. You want to tell stories. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we know some people okay. to get access to tell these stories, okay. to meet these people, to conduct interviews. Just the website or do you all have content like videos? and? So, how it started was just this. Right? Okay. We wanted to, I'll do some articles. Use, we have some mm. ideas. Like, I'm no longer with a publication or a website where I could translate those ideas for those that but mm. now I don't have a platform mm. and it's not like there's Rolling Stones or NME locally as well or a publication where I could submit my right. ideas or whatnot it's just right. there's no one would care about I felt okay. about what I wanted to write about besides okay. myself mm. so we got together he's passion he's really good in like film TV mm. content mm. music from my side mm. it's sort of really balanced it out. Of course, music was his thing as well, but he was way more knowledgeable also about film and TV, which I have. Close to zilch. Okay. Uh, local knowledge about. Okay. So we planned it out and whatnot, and then we decided to just, let's just do it. Like When did you all launch Gendang? This was earlier this year. Wow, that's pretty recent. Yeah, it's very recent. And then, <clears throat> in, in the sense, I think we were talking about it even before the podcast, we, uh, the, the idea of the Malaysian scene, entertainment hmm. scene, right? And I suppose you were mentioning earlier that music and how each music seems to be in its own vernacular. Lah. And, yeah. and probably English taking the biggest hit. I don't know. Uh, being the smallest of it. Or I could be wrong. I'm not sure. 
but in terms of like even like dramas mm. and movies and all there seems to be this this weird void uh, and maybe adam you're saying his name or who's the other person on gandang uh, zul m zulkifli m zulkifli okay so maybe zul would be a better person or he would know more about the movies but but you know my observation based on talking to people is that even our movie industry our drama industry is so vernacular yeah. right in the sense that uh you know we have tamil shows or indian shows tamil shows right and then we have uh chinese speaking and we have malaysians mm. and weirdly enough they don't seem to apply to this idea of malaysian shows in the sense that you know the tamil shows are always trying to show to you that you're in india or you know it's it's an indian world right and the chinese shows respectively same in the chinese world and the malaysian and the malay world and i think i'm sure there are but there doesn't seem to be sufficient you mean like your kopitiams and that kind of shows sir uh is that what you yeah yes ish but i also mean like you know when we when you think about uh how many movies can you think back and say it's a malaysian movie? right i got you man right not so much uh, a malay movie indian movie chinese movie you know it's unfair to characterize the language and the race right but then uh, just to simplify but the idea of being a malaysian yeah. like you know like you know, i think ola bola came close mm-hmm. as uh, they were touting it as a malaysian movie right so how how much content of it do we have but then even then people say oh there's 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 no market for such a niche right you know so so i feel you know if if that's what you guys are going after even in gandang where if you are able to bring this so called different genres under this umbrella of malaysia as opposed to yeah. uh, you know indian rap versus chinese you know and all that and have somewhere where you know if i like oig for example and i go to gandang i also get to see articles about other rappers you know even if it's other languages i get this idea that man these are all malaysian, malaysian yes. right yeah You know my ignorance is such right if you name the top 5 Chinese uh celebrities or entertainers in Malaysia I probably wouldn't know them yeah. I probably would if you had told me they are from Hong Kong or from China I I wouldn't know any different and I think that's a problem lah I think and as Malaysians we should know we should know because yeah. there's so much talent like through through this thing like it's like that you know I was curious as well so I being uh, English you know consumer yeah. of content yeah for the most part i also just steer towards those things yeah. i have no idea how the local chinese youtubers are or the rappers mm. or the musicians besides those who have either passed that you know the boundaries of being within that vernacular yeah. and made it on a larger scale and those who but there's some like this this guy's called 3p production if i'm not mistaken okay 3 3p 3 okay p p okay um so through a friend who because out of he found out that you know I like writing about local stuff and what not so he would like introduce oh you have you checked mm. this out have you heard that so it's nice like that's that thing going on i love discovering new especially when you get blown away right. and you see the video production of these guys they basically i think if i'm not mistaken bunch of dancers mm. who then started a youtube channel right. and they do this songs parodies mm. you know very humorous satirical stuff and what not mm. quality is insane yeah and no, you you're right i think they you know they i i guess the there are sufficient uh there are people like you know I, i'm trying to think of names you know like you mentioned what is the what is the current version of a kopitiam what is our 2020 version of 
of a comedy gal, right? So, okay, let's just say there's a lot of YouTube channels, right, where there's this view of Malaysia as in there's a mix of Chinese, yeah. Malay, Indian, right? But I also feel that this English-speaking pocket of Malaysia, which probably we would fit into mm -hmm. that pocket, right? A lot of people don't relate to that pocket, right? In the sense that when they see people speaking English, you know, there are, are segments of the Indian population, Chinese population, and even the Malay population will not relate. And I think that is why even our big media conglomerates are separated by, you know, Malay Connected channel, it, marketing, yeah. Chinese channel. And I think every one of them are mm. operating like that, right? But it will be very interesting to see if we can kind of make it inclusive instead of exclusive. I don't know how it would be done, right? But I think if, if Gendang is something new and you guys don't have the shackles of, yeah. <laughs> of corporate missionary on you guys yet, the, telling you all that, no, you, you must focus on this, a specific... You cannot specific... do that or you can talk about yeah. this or you can... Now, now you can talk about stuff from a neutral standpoint. Hmm. You can talk about the film industry as a whole. You can talk about the music yeah. industry as a whole. Yeah. Uh, you can talk about radio stations across the board. Back mm. then, if you were under this one, you can't talk about that one, whatever, you know. So the yeah. idea was, we let's do it for the readers. Yeah. What would you, as someone who enjoys local content, be mm. it film, TV, radio, arts, whatever, music, what would you want to know? What should you know? But do you think, right? Do you think, and this is where I feel, you know, in my ideal idealistic view of the world, right? I see journalism mm -hmm. as as holds a lot of responsibility, right? I don't take it as, oh, you can write, you should be a journalist, right? I feel it it holds a lot of responsibility because my view of it is such that it is, I feel now, uh, or maybe how uh, our corporate overlords look at it, right? Is that find people what they want and feed them what they want, right? It's basically saying which video has the most likes and do more of those videos equivalent of it, right? But I think journalism has a responsibility to kind of inform and educate as well in the sense that, hey, you should also be checking out these people. Yeah. These, even though, you know, you're an Indian guy and this is a Chinese band and you're not interested in this, but, you know, this... Check out these amazing things these Malaysians are doing, right? And doing it sufficiently so that you still give them what they want, but you also kind of inform and educate them, hey, this is other things in the genre that you should yep. be looking at. Yep. And I feel that question is not asked enough in the sense that, you know, it's a very arrogant way of thinking. Like The arrogant way of thinking is, you know what's good for the mm. reader. You know, it's, it's arrogant in the thought process, but it's also the thing that, you know, people like you and Zul, who who have this appreciation across a wide variety of stuff, right? So you know that if somebody likes this, hey, trust me, you're also going to like this, right? Trust us, you're also going to like this. And you kind of be the, uh, maybe bringing back the subject matter expert, lah, mm. right? To kind of tell people, look, you know, you should be exploring these other yeah. things as well. Yeah. Instead of being in our little cocoon of, I only watch English YouTube videos. Exactly. And you watch Chinese YouTube videos, you know that, and I feel like we we have kind of been very polarized that way. Yeah, and man, I think there's a lot of opportunity lah. But I think somebody like you guys, without <laughs> anybody breathing down your necks, probably you guys can pull it off lah. But if you know if you're starting off with if it's in a you know whether it's media prima or astro trying to do it, 
the first question they're going to ask is, who's your target market? And uh, revenue projections. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's not, it's just your demographic, your, if your demographic is the Chinese-speaking yeah, yeah. market, then it's a Chinese-speaking show focused on the Chinese-speaking market and suddenly you're it's in a pigeonhole, right? So in terms of the idea of Malaysia, is I feel it's lost, lah, right? Uh, I don't know whether I'm making sense, but I just... No, I get what you mean. Right. And and I'm glad that you see it that way as well because it is along the lines of what we just want people to discover great local talent. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you are, who you are. If you're mm. Malaysian and what you do and you create and there's just not enough people telling your stories, mm. we want to be the people to tell us. So yeah. And, we believe and, in and it. even in terms of talent, right? Even if you watch... Uh, if if I, I, I love to watch content, right? So like even if you watch like even... Uh, movies and Netflix or even music videos right even if we see the other side of the world the US and all that some of the greatest mashups are from you know from the Latin music yeah. mixing with you know uh, rap and all that so I think we will benefit a lot from you know if we can cross those borders like between the languages even in Malaysia if we can collaborate more there has been some but if we can collaborate more whether it's in acting or movies or whether it's in music, I think we only stand to gain. La. But I feel that right now it's very pigeonhole. I'm sure that given if the opportunity was there to, to have these collaborations, you know what, you know, Malaysians would, everyone would want to go for it. Yeah, it's man. just that getting that opportunity to even go to, to that yeah. extent is tough. The, the, Especially I, when you're not getting support here locally. As well. Yeah, my, my, the only painful thing, and I... I know I'm, I'm going to make it sound, I'm going to make a positive thing sound negative, but that's not my intention. I feel the only time we see this kind of stuff is when we want to promote multiculturalism or promote like, oh, we are not racist or promote that, right. oh, we are one, right? So only when you want to do a campaign of, oh, we are Malaysia, then, then you start you assembling all the artists from different race and religion. But... It's for that one song. So for, that means during August, September, that's when you get an influx. Ah, of and then what happens to the rest of our lives? Are you guys not? You know, in the sense that I think it's great that they're doing it, but it shouldn't. Uh, the reason why a, a Chinese it be authentic, singer like, like, and you know, an Indian rapper, the reason they collaborate shouldn't be about race, like It should be about the music and you know their talent. Yeah, yeah. And I think people will enjoy it, ma. Right. And in the sense that if you're doing it just to get a multicultural version video. <laughs> it becomes tacky at some time. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's, it's painful for me to watch. It's nice. I really enjoy it. Where, you know, I think the last one I saw was many, many, many years ago, the Here in Our Home. Have you? I think Pete Theo wrote Here in Our Home and I then, uh, and they got a lot of industry big wigs and also like, uh, even the, some of the big business guys also got in and they did this video clip of nice. diversity here in our home and all that. It was very nice, very beautiful, right? But does it translate to our real life? So I don't know, man. I would like to see uh, more collaboration. I think it'd be cool. Definitely. Yeah. I, I don't listen enough, even Tamil music. <laughs> like as a locally, you mean? Yeah. As, I mean, I, I, I'm biased towards English by okay. default. Uh, but I want to say um, my bias is by the language, but I listen to English from every continent. I mean, I listen to English songs from, from, from India, Malaysia, wherever it is, right? Uh, but also, you know, we enjoy listening to like, like Despacito, right? We don't know what the hell the guy is saying. It's just the music. And I think in that sense, every Malaysian can name like two Malay and two Indian or two Chinese songs that 
maybe India not so popular, but there's a Malay song that everybody is gonna, you know, like yeah. Hujan and all that. Man, everybody knows, right? It, you don't even have to understand it. I just think we need more of that, and we'd be better off for it, lah. That's true. Yeah, uh, I know we kind of segued. We didn't really get to talk about uh, what you're doing right now. Okay. <laughs> In terms With, of because this is what I'm doing right now. So I left the industry. Mm. I um, on the one end, I'm, I'm working on writing but in a different setting for okay. different industries okay and on the other Can hand can share just, the company that you're working for is that it's, a, a, it's an online market <laughs> Muda Muda right. okay cool okay yeah. so it, I find that interesting because I think a few years ago uh, I spotted uh, I think it was an advertising campaign but I thought it was very clever a music video by Ultimate right? okay and I think he was talking about Muda and, and the song was named Muda as well so I'm pretty sure it was an advertorial but done very well in terms of it was a song. So I thought in that sense, Muda was very progressive to kind of try out <laughs> different avenues for yeah. marketing, right? So you coming from the background that you have, are you trying to bring something different or is... Yeah, um, I'm trying to sort of show them how they can fully utilize me in terms of okay. what I've learned and, okay. and how they can maybe apply it to Muda possibly without having, considering that it was an option. Okay. You know, from a, as simple as a blog okay. or, or a few other initiatives, whether it's through basically communications, anything that mm. is being written or whatnot. Why do you think Muda needs that? Uh, Muda's like one of the oldest, mm. not an e-commerce, but a marketplace, right? right. Malaysia has been around right. since like 2012, if I'm not okay. mistaken. Uh, but throughout the years, back mm. then, they were one of the few, okay. if not the only. Okay. Like, as we know Muda now. and Lelong and... That's, that's about it, right? Mm. Okay. And then now you've got a whole bunch of different yeah. different other brands as well uh, who perhaps have a stronger, louder, younger, mm. fresher voice. Mm. And with that comes the perhaps the potential need to also, you know, step up mm. and also have and reach out to the right people. Because uh, when a brand has been around for so long, then you just assume that mm. it is something old for the old people and, and yeah. the, maybe the younger gen may not necessarily see how you can properly utilize Muda. Mm. How do you see... Uh, how do you see Muda? What is your view of Muda? I am a hoarder. Okay. Right? So, okay. for example, like I told you, it all started like, you know, even when I was interning and I was stealing magazines in the <laughs> storeroom. That that has gone on for like music stuff. So, whenever right. I go, I'll buy magazines, these little trinkets mm. and all, all this kind of stuff. So, I'm a hoarder. Mm. Muda is a perfect place. <laughs> okay. For hoarders, because you, you find literally quite anything mm. on Muda. Okay. As long as it's not illegal. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, collectors, you know, you find great stuff, vinyls, records, you right. know, if you like Star Wars, heap bunch of Star Wars stuff, Batman, whatever. Mm. So I was thinking there's a lot of interesting content mm. on top of people who are selling pre loved stuff. Mm. You also have people who are crafting things, creating mm. stuff from scratch, whether it's you know, carpenters or wood, woodmen and all those kind of stuff. Okay. There's all that going on there. So, for me, as I look from a editorial perspective, right, I would write and tell these stories. Okay. So why not we do that on Muda's own platform? So your your idea of writing and telling these stories is, would you say, to get more sellers on your platform or to get to get more, more sellers and buyers? Okay. Because that's the unique thing about Muda. It's like you you can do both. Yeah. Uh, you buy and sell, and it the things you can buy and sell. It's just quite. Yeah. I mean, I uh, I I resonate with the idea that of you being a hoarder. Mm. I'm a massive hoarder as well. Uh, 
but my wife has kind of put stipulations on my hoarding ability. So uh, hence when, why I'm not married. Uh, not yet, lah. <laughs> uh, man, they will get you. They will get you. <laughs> Whoever they, I, I don't know. They will get you, right? But in the sense that, um, so she kind of like kind of puts me down to reality. Like if I buy too many shoes, like. Come you know, down. like oh, sell some of your shoes. Okay. Before you buy some of, because you only have, you know, how many shoes can you possibly wear, right? So. Ever enough. <laughs> I also keep too many shoes. <laughs> Fortunately, it hasn't come to the selling part. So I actually got onto this platform. So I actually use uh, not to negate. Yeah. The, I use Carousel a lot. Yeah. Right. And Which is also I've, under the same company. Oh wow. Okay, but I do find this. Uh, and correct me where I'm wrong in my thing. Like I tried uploading. Because at that first point, I just wanted to get rid of as many things as I can, mm. right? So I uploaded on Carousel, Facebook, and Muda, okay. right? By far, Carousel seems to be getting a lot more, even uh, more than Facebook. Yeah, yeah, a um, lot more Facebook, a lot more than Facebook. Carousel seems to be getting a lot more interest, lah, right? Whether I actually sell it. But what I also found that Carousels. If I think as a you know as an entrepreneur, I think Carousel is just burning cash lah. They're just burning tons of money because there's no real monetization, right? Whereas when I tried to do it on Muda, at least maybe a year, a couple of years ago, is there's a lot of oh, you have to buy ads, you have to buy some points to promote. I think now maybe it's free. You can oh, upload no. for so free. You, I don't you know. constantly can always post a free ad. Okay. But if you want to increase the visibility for the uh, said ads, then yeah. you have a few like. Uh, premium services they call it which uh-huh. you can choose so some will either bring it up some will bring it like a, on top of the listing some will okay. be more prominent position yeah. those kind of little things yeah I mean Carousel also introduced that point system I have not bought any points okay. in that sense uh, but I found the ease of Carousel I think when they launched one of the USPs was take a photo mm. and put it to sale so that's <clears> very <throat> but I think Murad has a bit more Steps up. Ah, a bit more. Maybe it's just their process to QC lah. But it feels like a longer process for me to sell something. Like Carousel, sometimes I will just walk around. I'm like, photo, 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 mm-hmm. wait for sale. And if somebody's interested, then I'll take more photos of something that I'm selling, right? So I, I won't even bother taking too many photos. If they want more photos, okay, there's an interest, and I go take more photos, right? So in the sense, you're saying that now that they're under the same group, uh. Are they moving towards that simplicity as well? Is Muda? Yes. So funny you should mention that. I mean, I guess what uh, Muda had or mm. still has mm. is the reach, the, the yeah, number. Yeah. Right? It's insane. And then Carousel, mm. being a newer, fresher company, mm. has the back-end tech abilities to make the whole mm. process really smooth. They and don't have the legacy issues of this platform. Precisely. And the database. So, this whole marriage thing really works to the benefit of... So, who merging. owns who? I mean, it's under so the same umbrella? Or? Like, it's owned essentially by Telenor, which still okay. owns DG as well. Right? Okay. And under Telenor, essentially, there was a other company in Singapore. Okay. And then that company merged with Carousel. Okay. And then now... The idea is to have all these marketplaces in Southeast Asia okay. because separately mm. they had places in like Myanmar, mm. Vietnam, mm. Philippines, Singapore, Hong Kong, whatever. Now together, it's sort of like a more Southeast Asia thing. Okay, so they have all places. So Muda and Carousel is part of the same group. Are there any other marketplaces in the same group? Yeah, but they're all like in the different different countries with different names. Uh, apart from Carousel, which carries the same name around the region. Okay. Interesting. So yeah. in terms of um, Okay, so in terms of Muda, but for you, you are focusing on Muda, right? I mean, you don't... Muda is where I am learning to 
apply writing in a different setting. Mm. For example, if they're developing the app and what that kind of stuff, then okay. I'm part of the whole UI UX experience, oh, and wow. onboard, which is great. Like I love when there's mm. this learning of new thing and, and mm. applying and there's a challenge bit because uh, you know it's stuff that yeah. I. I used to just write whatever the hell I wanted to yeah. interview people and whatnot. And then this is very more focused. And then you're adhering to their rules mm. in their setting. This is mm. our brand. <laughs> this is who we appeal to. Okay. Uh, you know, all those things. And then mm. it sort of brings back memories of yeah. the other industry. So it's interesting in that sense. No, I like, I, I, I always like, I, I thought Buddha's branding is spot on. I mean, uh, the name, the branding, the positioning is spot on. I just struggled with the app. Mm where I felt it took a little longer than I needed. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, man. I hope you can put up some interesting content to get people to come on. So, uh, like, for example, Star Wars Day and all those kind of things. I didn't mm. see an article on the rarest things you can find Star Wars mm. related on Muda. Because I feel mm. as a collector, I want to mm. sort of appeal to all these communities and societies and whatnot, as hobbyists and, mm. and collectors. Because mm. it's a great place for you to you know, if okay. if if I dare to suggest a, 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 a story for you to look at yep. on behalf of okay, right, sure. is is I actually found the idea of um, not needing to throw stuff away very yeah. satisfying. It, not so much that I can sell, right? Because uh, I give you an example. I've I because of my shoes. Some of my shoes are very old, right? But I take care of my stuff. I wipe it down, keep it nice, and all that. So. Some shoes are like five years old, but still look wearable. But I don't wear them anymore. And I usually I would throw it away or give it away to charity, right? The problem with giving it away to charity is you never know where it's going to end up. Yeah. And you never know if they're going to use a size 13 or, yeah. shoe, whether they're ever going to need it, right? So it kind of gets lost in the system. So what size I... Size 13. Size... Big fuller. Like <laughs> so, so what I did was actually I started putting some of the shoes like really cheap, like 30 ringgit, 30 ringgit. Okay. So you wouldn't think twice to buy uh, Under Armour shoe or an Adidas shoe for 20, 30 bucks or, or, or formal shoe for 20 bucks, right? Just so that if somebody else who maybe can't afford a $100 shoe, maybe they would buy a $10. It's, it's so much better than me throwing it away. Yeah. Right? And I realized it in the most accidental way because I was cleaning up some stuff and then I, I found a lot of my old phones that, you know, my... Note one, note two, still works, can switch on. And I had no heart to throw it away or whatever. I so I just put it up for sale. Lah. And there were kids coming from Banting. You know, they drive an hour to come and buy the buy the phone. And I was like, I just sold it for like 100, 150, right. 200 bucks or that. And they were like so excited to buy it. And I was like, why do you all need this mm. so badly that you're coming from Banting? Can't you get other phones? Mm. And I realized that for them, they're looking at it from gaming, right? Saying, right. oh, this, this processor can game oh, see, you see. Be gaming all the time like I've yeah. never gamed on this phone <laughs> ever right and you realize that uh, you know if I were just to give that you know I don't want to make a stereotype but if I just were to give it to uh, let's say a gardener right he doesn't game yeah. he doesn't need that phone but a kid who really wants to game who wants a phone suddenly can find it yeah. on Muda yeah. right and the fact that somebody like me don't have to throw it I hate the idea of the wastage yeah, right? yeah. If, if I can give it to someone else and the thing and that person will use it, of, yeah, you know, and it's going to be used and appreciated, and that person wants it and just never yeah, had a chance. To get like, it. That's great, you know. In in a in a way, it's like buying a second hand car in a yeah, very yeah. small way, right? You know, <clears throat> in an ideal world, everybody buys new cars, but realistically, we all can't afford new cars, so yeah. you buy second hand cars, right? So in the same way, I feel that even the silliest thing, I've sold things for like 
five bucks, dude. Like the most silliest things. But I just so now when I look at something, I just go like, can I sell it or do I want to throw it? And sell it not in a way it's profitable, right? Yeah. In the sense, it's just that it goes to someone who wants to use it, right? So I've even had cases where they get something and I give a few other things for free, lah. Doesn't matter because I know you will appreciate yeah. it. And I think that I don't know whether I don't know whether that angle is a valuable angle to look at from promoting the platform because even like when I see other platforms like Carousel, it's kind of it's shown more on a sense of making money, selling, uh, making money yeah, kind yeah, of deal, yeah. right? Or how easy is it to sell? Yeah. But I think there's something to be said about you know uh, reducing our wastage. You know, for sure. You know, it is like you know reusing. I know they say recycle, reuse, and all that crap, right? So it's re- literally reusing, but somebody else is reusing it. By by going on on that thing, mm. people won't care. Mm. Like if you're mm. saying that, oh, I'm selling stuff. Why don't you buy pre-loved items mm. to save nature and ecosystem? Mm. Mm. Uh, truth is, as much as we wanna be all conscious, and and they're mm. gonna be like, nah, I just want something that I need or that's useful no, but for me. From a buyer's point of view, yeah. hopefully this the yappy urbanites who want to save the ah, world okay. who might have some cool yeah, shit yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. maybe get them to do it out of a social responsibility <laughs> I mean buyers will only buy if they want it so yeah. we're not worried about the buyer yeah. but in a sense the, of the sellers the sellers who are hoarding like you and me right mm. <laughs> who might have some cool stuff that they might not appreciate but somebody else might might really appreciate right I don't know man. I found that to be like very very interesting la. I have guys who have bought like shoes from me they'll message me like Every six months, they message me like, "If you have any other shoes that you're oh. selling, <laughs> because you know, once they know they can get size thirteen from yeah, yeah, somewhere, especially your size, yeah." So they're like, "Where do you have any more shoes you're selling?" Right. So in a sense, I didn't realize it. I, I, you know, I got into it by accident. I realized that oh, I don't have to throw, yeah, and this doesn't have to end up in a garbage. I, honestly, sell no. I, I honestly buy more than I sell. Mm. I still keep. I still have my phones. We're talking about non-camera phones, Nokia, mm. I don't know what. No, I still mm. have it. I had Why? IPhone, I don't know. I had an iPhone 1 that I sold. A guy came and he, he bought it for me for 200 bucks. <laughs> I was I was like, the phone switches on and just continuously restarts, right? And he was buying it for me and he was like, yeah, I wanted to buy one of these just as a collector. La. And the one in the US was selling it for like 15,000 ringgit. I looked at him, bugger, <laughs> 200 bucks and you're telling me it's worth 15,000? <laughs> I was like, okay, nah, it's your profit if you can sell it for 15. So in the sense that, yeah, man, I, I, I just feel the idea of being able to to not look at things as throwaway. Yeah. Oh, One I, man's I, trash, as they say. Yeah, I know, I just don't like the idea of this throwing it's away just, stuff. Uh, it's just uh, so much rubbish, man. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a hoarder. Like, I buy a shoe, I, have, I keep the box. And yeah, when I sell I the shoe, no, seriously, when I sell the shoe... The same box. It's the same box with the wrapping paper, with everything, you know. And then they're like, you kept it all this while? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I don't I, throw stuff. Yeah, I have paper bags <laughs> in my house, paper bags, plastic bags, boxes, all this. I just keep, I said, in the boxes, I'll put the paper bags. Bro, the, what am I going to use paper bags So I don't know. So I, I give you a hint of the OCD that my wife has to deal with, right? When I bought my uh, previous Samsung Note, whatever, right? When I bought it, they came with the paperback that had the Samsung branding, uh-huh. that, that phone branding. So I kept the paperback aside and I kept the phone, the box, everything, right? So when somebody, when I decided to sell the phone, I sold to the person in the same paperback. This is years later after buying the phone. With that phone's oh, launch paperback, with the box, with everything. And they were like, 
You should just charge extra for that. <laughs> no, but that's just for my pleasure, right? The f- my OCD is that, okay, like, it's if somebody's getting this, they're going to feel like... the way like they should. Yeah, they, they, uh, they're going to feel like it's a new phone. As opposed to, charger pun tak ada. Now, this is the phone, right? Yeah, Suddenly, yeah. You, f- you feel like it is inferior. But if you give something like it's in a full box... You know, they know that, it's been... Yeah, so that's well just my OCD. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, but that's the thing. So I feel like I don't want to throw my... I want it to go to someone who would also appreciate it. So I think that's why platforms like Carousel and Muda, mm. I'm I'm very appreciative of it. And the fact that I tell people that you don't have to throw away your old shoes, they look at me like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> really, I swear to God, I tell my friends that they don't believe me. They don't believe me that you can sell your stuff. Mm. So that's what I mean, like stupid urbanites like yeah, yeah, us yeah. probably need to be edited. They just think that oh, if I'm not using it, I dispose of it. Because we that's use the end of its life. Uh, we use and throw and we, or we happily throw it into that big recycling, reuse recycling. And I've done my part for the environment. Yeah. <laughs> but that you don't know where that goes yeah, and yeah. whether somebody actually uses it, right? So in the sense, there, there may be, I mean, there may be an opportunity to educate the urbanites who might give a fuck about saving the planet, yeah, yeah. who should give a fuck about saving the planet, should I say. Uh, buyers will always be happy. Lah. Okay. I, I think I've dragged on a bit too long. Two hours, man. You didn't feel like it just flew. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for doing this. No, thanks for having me. I really hoped there was something to get out of it. <laughs> it just felt like a and, random... And just as a precursor, um, I think it might be a good idea to maybe have you and maybe even Zul together to... Talk a little bit more about Kendang and local content as such. So uh, would maybe be... later on, yeah. But have a chat with him. I, I would love to s- to see and be educated on yeah. Malaysian content, local Malaysian content. That'd yeah, be yeah. fun. Thank you very much. Thanks, man. Thanks, Ijaz. Thanks, for <laughs> no